It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Maui. It's Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. Uh, today we have... Maybe I've said this a lot before, but I really mean it today. We have a real doozy of uh, of chapters today. Uh, like, some real powerful content. See, I was preparing to say that while a little while ago we did have my favorite chapter, this is also my favorite chapter. It's just less densely, like, packed. They're not this by is much. A really good, this is a really good part of the book, is the thing. It really uh, is. So, uh, today... We are going to be discussing chapters 36 through 40, um, which actually, uh, word-wise, is a little shorter than many of our selections often are, um, because a number... Actually, all of these chapters are uh, framed to some degree as um, scenes in a play, uh, which is something that showed up a little bit before, and we've talked about it, um, but this is where, like... This is the most sort of intensely... Uh, I mean, almost Shakespearean, um, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's generally play um, instructions, you know, they have their exits and their entrances, but uh, there's also like some of the chapters we're going to read today are pretty much literally soliloquies. Yes. And one of them is literally just has a bunch of like names of types of sailor who all have one line, like the way that a scene in a Shakespeare play that's all like, uh, you know like random I mean, soldiers or it, whoever it's would not be. just soldiers one through four or rather second nantucket sailor dutch sailor and uh azor sailor no it's also um it's also a musical there there are songs and they have like lead in well, shakespeare shakespeare is a musical too all yeah, the time no, like there's lots of songs in uh in, i in, know, you it's, know it's very intentionally shakespearean and i mean the the language uh, of the soliloquies, I'm not going to say whose soliloquies just yet, uh, is <laughs> intensely Shakespearean and uses a lot of the same uh, sort of rhetorical style, um, which does mean we get some great uh, Ishmael allusions at second hand. Yeah. Uh, now, I will say it's not, um, I don't think there's any parts of this that are actually doing, like, um, iambic pentameter. It's not quite oh, that much of a Shakespeare yeah, pastiche. Yeah, no, you're right. It is, it is like... It is Shakespeare, but it's definitely meant to be read, not spoken. I mean, it is also really good spoken, to be clear. Yeah. I, I Well, also, I think that the illusion here might be a little bit more to, like, um, drama more generally, right? Like, mm. I, don't, I, don't, I just don't know enough about what 19th century plays looked like, right? That's, that's uh, very fair. Um, I suppose what I, I would say is that uh, I am aware that royalty in Shakespeare often spoke in blank verse. Yeah, no, like, I definitely think, I, I definitely think that, like, there's a lot of uh, Shakespeare illusion going on here. I just also think that some of the bits of this, like, for example, um, you know, the fact that the thing that marks it as a play is that it's almost all dialogue with, like, 
very little of like what I would think of as stage direction that I would expect from like a 20th century play. Mm. Uh, but I don't know what like 19th century plays looked like. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. Since we're starting with this, by the way, I thought I'd very briefly mention and then maybe return to it later that this is also very modernist in a lot of ways. The sort of Farrago style of combining different uh, different genres of written work, poetry, prose, and uh, you know the- theatrical stuff is uh, sort of a hallmark of the modernists who are some 60 to 70 years after uh, after Moby Dick. So I just think it's very cool that this book really was just in a very literal sense in terms of like, you know, uh, English literature and its various experimental offshoots uh, ahead of its time. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. And that's definitely, that's definitely part of what's cool about this. Um, but it's not just the the formal structure that has us so excited about these chapters. In oh fact, no! <laughs> yeah. So so uh, I want to I want to get to the summary. Yes, yes, uh, yes. Because so we're starting with chapter thirty six, the quarter deck, uh, which is definitely the longest chapter we're doing today. And this one is like only um, like kind of light lightly play shaped in that it has the, so the first line in the chapter is like in parentheses enter Ahab then all, uh, but it's still oh, I like, got chills I got chills. It's still like paragraphs, you know, it's still like, like, um, narrative, there's still like a narrative voice, you know, rather than everything being dialogue as, as will happen soon. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's mostly dialogue. It's driven by speeches. And in fact, I mm-hmm. think the, the moment that I want to sort of draw out in that respect is that in the middle of a speech, there's a little italicized parenthetical that reads aside. Yes, that's very good. And that's, and yeah, no, I, that's the point at which it's like, okay, we are doing a play now. Yeah, like it almost feels like over the course of this chapter, we're switching from novel to play. Yeah, ab- um. absolutely. That That is precisely that element. And, and we'll see as we get to the other chapters how much that sort of develops. Yeah. So, um, so at the beginning of this chapter, um, we are kind of like... Uh, placed back into, like, plot event time, you know? So, like, mm-hmm. uh, we, we talked about on the last episode how uh, the chapters that we read that time were kind of, um, like, they were bringing us into, like, events on the Pequod again, like, out of the totally timeless nature of, of cytology. But, um, but it was in this kind of sense where it's like, oh, these are... This is how things are typically on the Pequod, it, right? It's habitual, descriptive. It's, it's descriptive rather than narrative. Yeah, so now we are back into, like, actual, like, chronological events. Uh, it, um, specifically, it's it's not too long after uh, the affair of the pipe, meaning, you know, that time when Ahab cussed uh, Stubb out and then quit smoking. <laughs> quit smoking in, as I believe we mentioned, the most dramatic and least healthy way imaginable. Yes. Um, so now uh, Ahab is taking his, his like morning stroll around the deck, which is something he typically does, uh, but he's doing it with particular intensity. Uh, which for Ahab is, is saying a lot. Yeah, no, he's always very intense about this, but there's something about this day where, like, uh, you know, the way, the, the, the comparison that's made is that it seems as though his singular thought is pacing inside of him, just as he is pacing the Pequod. Um, and, and both he's of clearly, them are leaving marks. Yes, and he's clearly, like, about to do something. Um, uh, the way that Stubb puts it is, uh, the chick that's in him pecks the shell, 
will soon be out. For the revolution so, of the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. This is very funny for me and Ben, who watched Revolutionary Girl Utna recently. It's <laughs> where very the good. idea Yeah, um, and, and the image of, of a, a, a chick pecking its shell and, like, sort of struggling to be born is... Uh, Crucial? Recur- recurs a lot in that show, yeah. Although I say the image, there's never actually visuals of that. Which is weird, the, the... given what the visuals in that show are like. That's that's true, but it's also because that specifically, that line is a reference to um, the no- a novel by, uh, I want to say Herman Hesse, which is also, I believe, about, in that specific phrase, Abraxas, the deity of Gnosticism, or a deity of Gnosticism. So it's it's referencing literature. So it makes sense to me that that image is never crystallized in visually in Udina because it's itself a reference to literature that doesn't have sort of an original image. But sorry. Yeah, I mean, I'm so excited for this chapter. Yeah, I don't want to get distracted talking about Udina. It did occur to me that there is an episode of Udina that's all about an egg, but we don't need no, to talk about that. No, moving on. Also, um, just a quick thing though. This uh, the 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 Hesse passage that you're talking about, yeah, um, definitely postdates this book yes, quite a bit, considerably. Um, yeah, Hesse is a 20th century author. Yeah, so so this is not a reference to that. It's more like a reference to Udina. Sorry, <laughs> no. <laughs> Shut it's, up, it's, Ben. <laughs> it is an alignment of uh, of symbolism. You're right. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, so, so Ahab is, is being all weird and restless all day long. Um, and in the evening, uh, he suddenly stops pacing and he orders Starbuck to call the entire crew aft, uh, which is very extraordinary. I mean, for one thing, it entails calling people down from the mastheads, um, which, you know, you'll recall from the last chapter basically never happens when it's light out. Yeah. Um, it, it also means that there's no one on rigging. There's nobody, like, I, the, um, you know, the uh, the helmsman is aft, so there is someone steering the boat. But there's no, um, there's nobody keeping watch out front in case of debris or anything. There's This is really not just extraordinary in the sense of, like, the, um, the money-making and sort of uh, everyday business of the ship, which is sort of why the masthead's being called down is extraordinary. But also, just in terms of sailing, is a really bizarre and kind of... It's not necessarily dangerous, given that they're out at sea, the weather seems fine, it's a bright sunny day, There, you know, there's no rocks around. But it but is... But it's a little reckless, maybe. Yes, exactly. It's reckless and it's, it shows a weird amount of dedication to something. Yes. Uh, and, and it also, like, it makes it clear that he really needs every single person involved in this, right? Like, it yeah. wouldn't do to... This isn't like, oh, I'll give an order to the mates and they'll relay it to the men, which is, like, probably the more normal way of Ahab yeah. relaying things. Uh, yeah, we've got in the sense that Ahab is remote from his crew in a lot of ways. He doesn't really interact with them either to demand their sort of, like, you know, ritual obeisance or to ch- get chummy with them, he just exists and they move around him. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, everyone, everyone's called together in aft. 
Uh, and uh, after pausing dramatically for effect long enough to <laughs> cause everyone to wonder what the hell he's doing. There's a, um, there's a really great pun there, which is because he goes back to pacing. And mm-hmm. uh, Stubb cautiously whispers to Flask that Ahab must have summoned them there for the purpose of witnessing a pedestrian feat. Like, yes. the, the pun being that it's, it's, oh, it's, he just wants us to see something normal, and the book's about to get very, very normal, by which I mean not, not even a little. <sighs> yes. Um, anyway, uh, so Ahab does finally address the crew, and he, he basically addresses them with a, a whaler's catechism, uh, which is to say he's, he's asking them a series of questions to which there are expected ritual answers, you know, to kind of, like, uh, uh, whip up their their fervor for their yeah. task. Uh, so he asks, you know, what do you do when you see a whale, men? Sing uh, out and, for him. Right. So he's asking, like, basically the very obvious question of, like, how how do you do whaling? Yeah. Like, what exactly is it that you all are here to do? What's your purpose? And it's, you know, to, to go after whales. And so he kind of asks a series of questions that, that are kind of like, okay, once you see a whale, what do you do next? And it's like, ah, oh, we... Like go after him. Um, I like the I like the last one a lot. Uh, and yes. what tune is it you pull to, men? A dead whale or a stove boat? Um, and uh, yeah, so this so far is so much so uh, conventional, right? Like this is not every whaling ship would necessarily have a moment like this where the captain addresses everyone and gets really excited to hear their answers. But like every whaling ship theoretically should give these same answers, right? Yeah, I really liked your comparison of it to a catechism. That's a, I, I hadn't thought of that, but I think that's really sort of the, the energy here is that because they have a, they're whipped into a fervor just by repeating this statement of purpose, and it clearly sort of fortifies them, and Ahab can see that this is something he can use. Yes. Uh, so so uh, once they've announced a dead whale or a stove boat, uh, Ahab pulls out uh, he like takes a, a, up a position, grasping a shroud, um, and he pulls out a, a gold doubloon and brandishes it. Um, and uh, he has Starbuck get him a hammer, and he nails it to the mainmast, um, declaring that whoever sights a white whale, uh, a specific one with a wrinkled brow and a crooked jaw and three holes punctured in his starboard fluke, uh, that person will get that doubloon. Um, and everyone cheers. Or rather, actually, I should say, uh, the the sailors cheer like the 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 people who aren't officers. Uh, the harpooners and the mates have their own kind of reactions to all of this, though, mm-hmm. because um, the harpooners have all been kind of taken aback by his description of this quarry, and they all, each of them, kind of asks for clarification, like, "Oh, you're, are you talking about? You must be talking about Moby Dick." Um, and they all kind of, like, list more, like, peculiarities of Moby Dick that they know about him. Like, his his fluttering tail, um, and his huge spout, um, and his hide, which is studded with twisted harpoons. Um, twisted, like, corkscrews. And I love the the physical description here is just fantastic, because it, it sort of intensifies this sense that it's not just, oh, he has some general category of whale he's after. He's after one incredibly particular whale, and not only that, but this whale that has this, like, incredible physical presence such that those who've seen it are sort of baffled and terrified by it, even later sort of recounting it. The way, um, like, 
Queequeg isn't even able to sort of figure out how to properly describe the appearance of all those twisted harpoons coming out of it. And there's this moment of like mutual incomprehension and sort of until they're both like, oh, yes, we've both seen it. We both know what it is. It's twisted like a corkscrew. Yeah, like, you know, the sort of what's literally happening in that moment is just that Queequeg can't remember the English word corkscrew. Mm -hmm. But like, absolutely, it's a I think it's a it's it's worth highlighting the fact that Queequeg fumbles for a word there because it's like it is this thing that we've seen throughout this story right of like things that are unmentionable and like the fact that moby dick is is full of harpoons um is one of his physical features that's most terrifying right because it means that lots of people have tried and failed to kill him um yes and it's also very um i mean it's very coincidental but it's very intense that all three of the harpooners have seen Moby Dick, and all of them have this intense impression of the white whale. Yeah, and, like, there is a little bit of a sense, I think, like, the harpooners are, are, um... Ahab kind of takes the things they say as... I I mean, uh, hearing that all of them recognize Moby Dick fires him up even more, and he's like, yes, yes, that's right, um... The emotional tone for the harpooners here is, I think, really, like, interesting and complicated because mm-hmm. um, they are going to sign on fully with this plan. Yeah. Um, but I do think there's a little bit of a sense as they're all being like, oh, do you mean Moby Dick? Like that Moby Dick? Where the Moby Dick? You could kind of read them as being like, are you shitting me? You want me to kill Moby Dick? Yeah, no, there's definitely sort of a sense of, okay, he's describing what can only be Moby Dick. I have seen Moby Dick. Uh, He cannot be describing Moby Dick because if he wants us to kill Moby Dick, that is not... uh, I I mean, I don't even know if they necessarily think it's not a good idea. I think there's just something impossible about that concept and and starbuck will I mean, raise more issues about the idea of hunting a specific whale to be clear for sure but like the sense i think it like this is all very much reading between the lines mm, yeah um, that is all that the harpooners directly uh but 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 i think that like if there is any objection expressed in in what the harpooners are saying here it's an objection of like this is an enormous undertaking, right? Mm, yeah. Um, they're they're definitely not objecting morally as Starbuck will. Yeah. Um, they're just like a little bit odd. Yes, um, and and there's a certain sense of like, are are you sure this is what you mean? I want to be absolutely positive we're talking about the same whale here. Yes. Um. And uh, speaking of Starbuck, uh, he now speaks uh. up. Uh, and he's kind of, like, put this all together, and he's like, oh, Ahab, wasn't it Moby Dick that took your leg? Uh, to which Ahab's immediate reaction is the hilarious statement, who told you that? Um, <laughs> yeah, no, he, um, he, like, he cries out and spins around with, who told thee that? And then immediately just sort of goes, oh, yeah, no, I, I get, yeah, yeah, okay, yes. Like, yes, it's like and Ahab, also, yes. everyone... <laughs> Everyone knows about the story about you losing your leg and how it was a terrifying mythic whale that did it. Like, the fact that actually Starbuck didn't think until this moment, like, oh, the whale that he wants to hunt is Moby Dick for revenge for his leg. Like, 
I'm not saying that uh, Starbucks should have put it together before this conversation, um, but uh, yeah. like the way that is the way that it's expressed here is uh, it's something like I've um, heard of Moby Starbuck, Dick, but it was not Moby Dick that took off thy leg. <laughs> yeah, I mean the the thing that I was thinking is is the the narration where it says Starbuck had thus far been eyeing his superior with increasing surprise, <laughs> but at last seemed struck with a thought which somewhat explained all the wonder. Yeah, no, so, like, what that tells you is that Starbeck has been sitting here being like, what the fuck are you doing, Ahab? You're calling everyone aft? You're talking about a white whale? Why are you talking about a white whale? Who cares about a white wh- Oh, it's Moby Dick! And it's well, like, okay, buddy. I, I mean, I think it's both, oh, it's Moby Dick, and also, like, sort of like, why, why would you specifically want to go after Moby? Oh, oh, it's because you want revenge for your leg? What the fuck? Yeah, yeah. And um and then, you know, Ahab is uh there's this this line, he shouted with a loud terrific a terrific loud animal sob like that of a heart-stricken moose, which I assume yes. means a moose like struck through the heart with like a, a spear, but for a second there I was thinking like a really sad love-struck moose that just got turned down. I mean, I I think the illusion might, in fact, be to, like, the mating call of a moose. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's good. Like, I would assume that... I, I don't actually know if moose have or don't have mating calls. If they do, I would assume that they're very loud and weird. Yeah, just yeah. Because I mean, mm- moose are huge and weird. <laughs> that they are. Uh-huh. Anyway, so yeah, it is this kind of, like, interesting little, like, emotional journey where, like, at first Ahab is mad that someone reminded him that Moby Dick took his leg. And then he kind of remembers, like, okay, right, actually, I do need them to know that. I can't just take offense at someone pointing that out, because that's, like, the premise of what I'm doing. Yeah, um, yeah. But he's still clearly, like, really emotionally affected by just being, like, reminded of that loss. Yeah. And, like, really, he's really uh, upset, and, like, he's sobbing, but he's also really angry and yeah, devoted. And, yeah, yeah. Um, oh. And he kind of, from that, you know, emotional moment, he, he goes into... Uh, you know, he, 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 he really explains, like, what he's doing here, that he's going to chase Moby Dick around the entire globe and into the fires of hell. And yep, yep, that, that is literally that is what, what he says. That is what everyone has signed up for here. And so he's basically asking at this point, like, are you all on board with this? Like, now that I've revealed the true purpose of our sailing voyage, are you with me? Um, and everyone, uh, or rather, the harpooners uh, and, and the seamen. So not the mates, uh, but but the harpooners and the seamen are all like totally jazzed about this, and they 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 run closer to him and they yell, "I!" Um, they are totally on board with this revenge plan. Um, and uh, I do want to take a moment to talk about the uh, the metaphors Ahab uses when talking about the loss of his leg. Oh, please. Uh, He says, it was Moby Dick that dismasted me, that brought me to this dead stump. Um, The whale that raised me, as in, like, you know, you raise a building, uh, that made a poor pegging lubber of me forever and a day. And first of all, the, I think we've seen before this, this metaphorical connection of the idea of Ahab losing a leg to a ship losing a mast. Yeah, he's been referred to as having been dismasted before. And he's making... A sort of very clear idea that the thing that so upsets him here is that this wound is impossible to heal. It's it's permanent. He, forever and a day, is going to be someone who has this 
you know, ivory leg that replaces his. He's going, he is forever going to have to, you know, walk with care. He can't stride the deck normally. He can't, he has to have this, like, you know, pivot set up so that he can stand there. In a in many ways, it's, um, I mean, first of all, there's obviously a fascinating disability study discussion to be had about it, but even just on the basic level, there's a sense in which Ahab is more or less stating, I can never forgive this. I can't, you know, because I can never be sort of free of the effect of this as long as I want to be on a boat. Yeah, yeah. Um, incidentally, uh, when it comes to the, the part of this where we're metaphorically comparing Ahab to a ship, um, my uh, my copy, PowerMobyDick.com, uh, cites... So the, the word that you read is raised, mm-hmm. which I think is also uh, probably... So it is printed, it is written on powermobydick.com as razied, so R-A-Z-E-E-D. <laughs> yeah, which I think your version can, in general has more Well, the, no, let me oh, finish. Sorry. I'm not done talking. Um, so that is then cited as meaning something specific. Uh, it says, razied, cut away the upper deck of a ship to create a lower class of vessel. Oh. Also to prune or abridge by cutting off parts. Oh, wow. Wow. So... I'm just going to Google this real quick. I, I I would rather just assume that that is, in fact, the intent. In fact, it's entirely possible that raised in the context of ships does mean that, because, it you know, to tear down a floor of something is to raise it. And to cut off the upper decks to make a smaller ship is, is literally removing a floor of the structure. Yeah, so it looks like it is a... Uh, uh, it is called... I'm not totally sure how to read this pronunciation, so I can't be sure whether I'm pronouncing it right. But a, a razi is a sailing ship that has been cut down to reduce the number of decks. Uh, it's it's derived from a French word, which does ultimately come from the you know the same verb like mm-hmm. raise. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's like a specific thing. Okay. Um, so he he is comparing himself to a, a ship that has been physically reduced. Yeah. No. Wow. Thank you. Wow. I'm uh, I'm honestly just sort of struck. Yeah. Um, so, so in response to, you know, his crew, uh, uh, saying that they're with him, uh, Ahab blesses them, shouting, and and then he calls for the steward to go, uh, draw grog for them. Um, but Starbuck is not happy. Uh, and Starbuck. You know, Ahab's like, oh, what's wrong, Starbuck? Like, don't you want to hunt the white whale? And Starbuck's like, well, I signed on to risk my life for profit, not vengeance. And you can't sell vengeance. <laughs> um, uh, I... And Ahab pretty much brushes that aside. Um, I mean, uh, so Starbuck says, it will not fetch the vengeance, will not fetch thee much in our Nantucket market. Uh, and Ahab says, Nantucket market, hoot, which I just, like, that's very obviously him being like, Nantucket yeah, market, yeah. gives a shit, right? Um, but he does, you know, he then says, uh, uh, come closer, Starbuck, thou requirest a little lower layer, which uh, Power Moby Dick cites as a deeper explanation. So yeah. he's basically saying, okay, Starbuck, I'm going to give you the real answer here. Um, and uh, I, I actually don't totally know how to interpret exactly what he's saying. So... Um, Sorry, uh, please go on. I feel like there are two main ways I would read what he then says, which is either, uh, look, Starbuck, vengeance matters more than money. Like, I am counting this in the coin of vengeance. 
Or he's saying, look, Starbuck, Moby Dick is still a huge sperm whale. We're going to make a lot of money on this operation no matter what. Um, yeah, I I am inclined towards the first interpretation because something that I think is really present in Starbuck that I think we've touched on before is that he is the most, within the framework of the book, Christian of the crew. I mean, he's both the most yes. like religious, but he's also very much the Protestant work ethic. He is the, you know, he is concerned with practical matters, with the sort of goods that will be produced on this ship for, uh, you know, for Nantucket back home to take part in that market. I mean, literally mm-hmm. citing that here. And he thinks in terms of that practicality, which is presented as a sort of mild and Christian virtue. He is, um, he is very much willing to risk his life. You know, he is game for his crooked jaw and for the jaws of death too, but only in the pursuit of business. And I think to some extent Ahab is just rejecting that entire paradigm, is rejecting that idea that, you know, um, are we going to reduce everything to money? Are we going to consider money the value by which we understand the world? And specifically when he says, if money is mm. to be the measure man and the accountants have computed their great counting house, the globe, by gurgling it with guineas, one to every three parts of an inch. What he's saying is, if the world is sort of ruled by this market, if everything dissolves into currency, if the, if the, world, if the accountants have said that the world is their counting house, it doesn't matter to me because vengeance will fetch a great premium here. And he strikes his chest. Mm, oh yeah. You know, I missed, this is one of those places where I think even here we're starting to get into play stuff, yes. right? Because the actual, the actual way that we know that Ahab smites his chest is that he says, my vengeance will fetch a great premium here. And then Stubb says, he smites his chest, whispered Stubb. What's that for? Um, and, and so like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's nothing, it, th- if this were still a novel, like it was in like four paragraphs <laughs> yeah, ago, yeah, no, it's... Um, we it would have said like Ahab sm- smote his chest, which means like I actually didn't quite pick up on until just now the fact that he's he's not just smiting his chest out of like general enthusiasm. He's literally he's making a rhetorical yeah, right. point. He's he's saying my vengeance matters in my heart, even if it doesn't matter like financially. Yeah, I I love this little just as a, as a little literary technique. This shift into the. Uh, into not measure, but, you know, uh, playwriting into, into dramaturgy is such a fantastic one. I think dramaturgy is not. No? The, yeah. The, dramaturgy is like, um, the dramaturg is like the person who like does the like research on a play. Oh, and huh. like I did not. I, I think that's true. Yeah. I Like when you're putting on a play, you need someone, you might need someone who's like an academic uh, to like, I, I think yeah, that's what a dramaturg I, look, is. I, theater is not my area. It's not really mine either. Um, anyway, uh, but... Dear uh, readers, or dear listeners, if you have opinions on the precise meaning of the word dramaturge, I guess tell us sometime. I'd appreciate it. <laughs> I mean, we can always Google it, but it, it, yeah. I want to move on. Yes. Um, so, uh, so okay, uh, Ahab says this thing about basically, like, who gives a shit about money? <laughs> um, and Starbucks sort of rejoinder to that uh, is that, you know, trying to take your vengeance on an animal doesn't make any sense and also uh, is blasphemous. Or seems blasphemous. It's... Okay, yeah, he's being... He is... I feel like 
saying that something someone else is doing, it, I feel like Starbucks saying, Ahab, what you're doing seems blasphemous is like the tiniest little fig leaf that is necessary. Because if he literally said, Ahab, you're committing blasphemy, yeah, yeah, no, that's, like, that, he'd be killed. That's fair. Or at the very least, it would make for really um, awkward dinners. I mean, yeah, he wouldn't literally be killed, but like, you know, that would be talking it would be a back to Ahab. Yes, it would be a declaration of actual sort of antagonism. And I think it's worth just taking a second before we move on to the next section, uh, taking a second to look at this idea of vengeance, you know, on a, as he puts it, a dumb brute, that is to say an unspeaking, unthinking entity. Because, and, and why that might seem blasphemous, because this is sort of, I mean, first of all, this is sort of crucial to the book, this idea of does it make sense to get revenge on something that couldn't have motive and purpose that, as Starbuck puts it, simply smote thee from blindest instinct? It's, you know, it's like saying, I'm going to take revenge on the weather, or I'm going to hurt this inanimate, like the stove that I've burned my hand on. Yeah. There's a logic to it. Like, we've all, I'm sure, felt that momentary, like, you know, I'm sure we've all sworn at our computer when it decided to delete something we needed. Right, right. But on some level, we are supposed to know that that's not a reasonable response. The thing does not make decisions. It can't have moral culpability. Vengeance on it is just, you know, self-indulgence. It's a way, it's catharsis. And risking your life and the life of everyone on your ship to hunt down a legendary whale for the kind of catharsis that you get when you kick your car would not be a very compelling argument. And I also think, like, the the blasphemy there is that, you know, if you are imputing, like, like, what is the... Because I, I, I do think that Starbuck mm-hmm. ultimately believes that there is a will behind Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. In that, because he is, you know, a Christian, I, I think mm-hmm. he probably believes in providence, right? Which would mean that, in some sense everything that the natural world does is the will of God, right? Like, that's why people talk about, like, natural disasters as acts of God or whatever. But to that's why, like, objecting to and, like, wanting to take revenge on something that the natural world did to you is blasphemous Mm. because it's like, it's like you are, on some level, you are getting angry at an object, like you were just describing. Yeah. But also on some level, you are getting angry at God. Yes, I Um, think that's definitely present. And... I I will say that I think that there's a sort of complex Christian theology there where, you know, it's not as though uh, Starbucks Christianity says that he's not allowed to be sad that whales ate his brother and his father, which is a thing that happened. Um, Yes. But it's that vengeance, the specific idea that you have a moral claim on them as opposed to, well, that is a thing that occurred within the way the world works. And this is very Protestant work ethic as well, I think. Like... On some level, within Starbucks' worldview, or at least the worldview of Starbucks' world, uh, someone who is impoverished, you know, without actual dishonesty being involved, doesn't really have a right to be angry at the society and system and market that has produced their misery because it's sort of a, you know, it's a blind force that they were entangled with and there are misfortunes, but ultimately there is... Uh, supposed to be some kind of justice in the world that happens after that and that which is you know one strives towards as opposed to no i have been treated unjustly by this you know unthinking force i'm going to break what exists yeah um and uh i I think we should get into i mean 
So all, all of this that we've just talked about, about like, why would it be blasphemous to seek revenge? I think all of that is to some extent implied just by yes. Starbucks saying that it's blasphemous, but we can hear a lot more detail about the nature of Ahab's blasphemy. Uh, yes, yes. So there's a, the, the, the next bit is Ahab's response. Um, and uh, this is pretty much just him explaining like his his philosophy it's it's certainly his his mission statement his thesis for uh for why people should follow him into in his you know uh his you know i'll chase him round the flames of uh round the the flames of perdition uh he's absolutely this is his argument why you should you know why my cause is just and why it is possible and it's also like i i feel like the argument here is less it doesn't really come across. I mean, he is saying it to Starbuck mm-hmm. as part of his attempt to like get Starbuck on board with what he's doing. Yeah. But I don't really think he's saying this in a out of a desire to convince. Mm. I think Ahab is just like, well, this is what has convinced me that this is what I have to do. Yeah, he is like Ahab is revealing the that those secret thoughts that have been un- incessantly working in his brain for months now, both through his convalescence and through the voyage so far. The yeah. the thing that we have been tracking, see, like sort of subterranean uh, subterraneously through the narrative up to this point since Ahab emerged. Yeah. And uh, uh, so please, yes, I I'm going to read it. I was fully prepared to use all sorts of feints to get to read this. I was uh, considering lying on recording that it was my birthday, which uh, my co-host would know was a lie, but I was, you know, I was ready to do it, okay? (laughs) (laughs) You were ready to abase yourself in all kinds of ways to get to read this speech, but you didn't have to because I'm very kind and gracious, and I knew ahead of time that you would want to do this. Yes, and I really appreciate that. (sighs) Hark ye yet again, the little lower layer... All visible objects, man, are but as pasteboard masks. But in each event, in the living act, the undoubted deed, there some unknown but still reasoning thing puts forth the moldings of its features from behind the unreasoning mask. If man will strike, strike through the mask. How can the prisoner reach outside except by thrusting through the wall? To me, the white whale is that wall, shoved near to me. Sometimes I think there's not beyond. But tis enough. He tasks me. He heaps me. I see in him outrageous strength with an inscrutable malice sinewing it. That inscrutable thing is chiefly what I hate. And be the white whale agent, or be the white whale principal, I will wreak that hate upon him. Talk not to me of blasphemy, man. I'd strike the sun if it insulted me. For could the sun do that, then could I do the other, since there is ever a sort of fair play herein jealousy presiding over all creations. But not my master, man, is even that fair play. Who's over me? Truth hath no confines. And uh, that is not the end of uh, Ahab speaking. He actually kind of goes on and says a, a bunch more <laughs> about the, uh, just to kind of uh, But the rest, like... of, the rest of it from there is really focused on Starbuck. It's, it's, it's literally yeah. addressing him and sort of browbeating him with the sheer intensity of Ahab's fury. And also with the fact that the crew is sort of energized by Ahab. Yeah. He's sort of pointing out to Starbuck, you're outnumbered. 
Yeah, he's ba- like the, the the end of this paragraph is pretty much just like, okay, Starbuck, everyone else wants to hunt the white whale. Uh, if you don't think you're tough enough for it, I guess that's your problem. Um, uh, but but that uh, you know. Uh, so let's talk about uh, the view of the world that Ahab is expressing here. Yes. First of all, he is expressing like a fundamentally, you know, platonic idea. Here yeah. That, yeah. I mean, all visible objects are as pasteboard masks. So he's literally saying, like, we live in the the world of shadows. Yes. You or know, at the very least, he, yes, he's saying we live in the world of signs and images and, and appearances, but behind that is something more. And this is both platonic and more generally like the occult worldview, the idea that there are hidden forces and meanings behind material things. And what I find really interesting is that while he does state that, that there's, you know, that there are as pasteboard masks, he also says, sometimes I think there's not beyond. Like, that maybe this world of, uh, you know, pathetic images and material coincidences and whales biting off your leg is all there is, that there isn't something driving it. And that's just as sort of radical and angry as any of his direct imprecations against the things behind the mask, is the idea that they might not exist. And this is this is sort of, I think, really put forward in that phrase, be the white whale agent or be the white whale principle. And that's not principle in the sense of like a, a cause or an idea. It's principle in the sense of like the first mover, the, the, um, the causal entity, the person who's, you know, in charge here. Where if the white whale is agent, then the white whale acted on behalf of something else and he wants to take vengeance against it. And if the white whale is principle, then he still wants to take, he still wants to wreak his hate upon the white whale because the white whale still acted against him in that way. I I feel like the sense that Ahab has here is that it is possible that God doesn't exist, right? And that, like, all there is is a whale. But it's not possible that that whale does not hate Ahab. Like, he's willing to admit maybe the pasteboard masks of the world are all there is, but if that's true, then that pasteboard mask is itself malicious like malicious yeah, yeah. It, he is not willing to accept a world where like the the natural world is just unthinking and just does stuff and isn't directed yeah. by god or at the very least even if the natural world is just unthinking and there's not beyond he thinks that it's his sort of right and duty to fight back against it to strike against it because he is perfectly willing to judge the natural world and to say, you know, um, you know, uh, how can the prisoner reach outside except by thrusting through the wall? His his strike is not just against, you know, the whale and the loss of his leg, but some kind of utter limitation on the world that he seeks to transcend. It's very Gnostic. Yeah. And, and it's also like, I think there's definitely a sense here that like, he doesn't really care if it quote-unquote works right on some level he believes that he is going to be able to spit in god's eye by killing moby dick but it's also like you know even if that doesn't have that effect like even if i try but like the metaphysical nature of the world is such that i can't really get my vengeance i don't care i'm going to do it anyway yeah yeah Um, no absolutely and i think that leads very well into this idea of blasphemy i'd strike the sun if it insulted me 
and this this idea of fair play and jealousy presiding over the world where if you can be insulted if an entity can sort of act against you in a way that you know that ahab at least understands as them wronging you therefore they must be something that can be wronged or revenged upon back if the whale wasn't malicious the whale would not have done this yeah yeah like on some level on some level what ahab is asserting here is if i have been harmed then i can revenge myself yes. for that harm like it it is not possible for something to be capable of doing harm to be capable of insulting without then also being like a valid target for yeah, he's, you know, his harm and response. His his metaphysics of revenge is all encompassing, and he really does like. And even that, like the revenge aspect of it, he says, um, uh, is not his master, but rather truth has no confines. He's asserting the right of sort of him himself, really specifically himself. Uh, Ahab is very much in this for Ahab, but um, Ahab is asserting his right and like almost the right of intellect to this kind of world conquest, this kind of, you know, universality of, of vengeance, not even on the basis of, like, this being a moral requirement, you know, that fair play is not his master, but rather simply, again, if this thing can harm me in a way that I understand as harm, then it is true I have been harmed, and therefore I will have my revenge. It's, I, I do feel like, um, it's interesting, you say that, uh, like, I, I feel like you had a certain um, impulse there for a second to say something about, like, Ahab making a statement about, like, what mankind can do or, like, mm -hmm. what rights man has, right? And then you corrected yourself because, like, Ahab is really just talking about himself here. Um, but I do think there's a certain sense here, not so much that... Um, it's almost like Ahab is kind of looking at everyone else in the world, right, who is, mm -hmm. like, suffering the world's pain yeah and is in various ways not deciding to hate god and murder a whale for it and he's looking at everyone else and being like you fucking chumps you're just letting god beat up on you yeah. for no reason yeah no it's like i think that the the presence of truth as a as a moving image figure here as a powerful element is i mean it's very gnostic it's this idea that there are and we, we've seen this before this idea of like the secret elect the hidden inert the sort of um you know, the, the, this secret brotherhood that Ahab is implied to belong to, um, of people who I think are capable of having that kind of response, of sustaining that dedication to their to that truth, that kind of uh, claim, which I, I'm not saying that, you know, Ishmael or the book are necessarily buying into it fully, but it's certainly the case that they're making the argument for it, that while it's not maybe everyone, certainly Starbuck doesn't have the, you know, absolute will to defy God. He can barely defy Ahab. Um, mm -hmm. But it is certainly the case that Ahab, as like this pinnacle of some kind of human intellect, an imperial brain, is to some extent claiming that this is his right as such. And I, you know, I think you're right that there's like a this sense of if humanity were all imperial in that way, everyone would have this kind of drive to prove themselves against the world and to prove the world cannot master them yeah like i'm thinking about if man will strike strike through the mask yes, like yes. to me that's kind of ahab like 
telling everyone else, like, hey, if you want to do anything in this world, like, strike through the mask. Yeah. Like, don't just concern yourself with... Don't just delude yourself that the world that exists as it is and that, like, you know, torments you is, uh, like, that that is everything. That that is ultimate truth. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, absolutely. And again... It's very Gnostic. It's very much this sense of there is gnosis, there is knowledge that exceeds the world's and material world's limits. And if you know it, then you are in contention with these other and greater powers that seek to keep you down. Yeah, I, I also think it's it's very interesting to me that, um, uh, you know, we something we don't get in this chapter, mm-hmm. or actually in any of our readings today, is any direct sense of how Ishmael is responding to any of this stuff. Oh, that's a very good point. Um, yeah, no, Ishmael is like, totally transparent through this entire section. Um, well, and I, I think, I mean, like, we, we should talk about this more as we, yes. like, continue with the rest of this chapter and the way that, like, you know, the, the crew of whom mm-hmm. Ishmael is one reacts to the, the ongoing events. But, like, the, the reason that I'm thinking about this right now is that this kind of discussion, right, about, like, what is the nature of the natural world? What lies behind mm-hmm. it? Ishmael loves this kind of thing. Yeah, no, like, he, this he is the sort of thing does. that he's thinking about up on top of the masthead. Yeah. But Ishmael's version of this is, like, one that gives him, like, pleasure mm-hmm. and, and a sense of, you know, a sense of faith, right? Yeah, no, it's... Um, he absolutely it's, takes it's, sucker from the idea that this material world isn't everything. Right. And it's it's almost like I mean like the the like I really want to know what Ishmael thinks of this little speech. Mm. Um I think that, you know, you could there is a certain claim you could make that like, well, Ishmael doesn't hear him, he just says all this stuff to Starbuck. Um and Starbuck's response, you know, we'll see what Starbuck's response is. But like, um you know, first of all uh Ishmael's the narrator. Yeah, Ishmael recorded this in his book. <laughs> um, now, now, I will say, I do think that, like, in the asides and the soliloquies that we'll see following on, like, you do have to ask yourself, like, are we meant to literally believe that Ishmael mm. overheard this? Yeah. Or are we meant to believe that he imagined this? Or are we meant to believe that this literally happened and Ishmael didn't witness it on the ship, but somehow Ishmael, the author, is able to record yeah, it. Yeah, I actually like, would, I was about to say that you could read the the formal device of moving into the play as a move away from Ishmael's interiority to something that is meant to be sort of objective and exterior. There are sort of, there is a little bit of commentary that is um, at the ve- very end of this chapter that I think is Ishmael at the end of the, or not at the end of the quarter deck, sorry, uh, at the end of this page for me, sorry. Um, but the section where um, uh, after Ahab oh, says... All this foreshadowing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that um, is that is Ishmael's voice. But when we have sections of people just talking and, you know, commenting to each other or the soliloquies, I think we could read it as being something that occurred that Ishmael didn't have access to. And the uh, the play model, the, the, um, the change in form is precisely to sort of elide that issue and allow these to exist in the narrative despite that Ishmael has no access to them. Um, And to be fair, there are other moments throughout the book where there are things Ishmael should have no access to that he absolutely claims to have access to through narrative. So, you know, take this with a grain of salt. 
Yeah, well, I mean, that's true. Um, like, for example, this is not the first time that Ishmael has talked about, has, has like, has written in the book about a, like, a private conversation that he wasn't present for, mm -hmm. right? But when that's happened before, he's gone to the trouble of explaining something along the lines of, like, oh, well, the reason I know about this occasion where Ahab, like, cussed out Stubb is that, like, Stubb talked about mm, it later yeah, to yeah, someone yeah. else, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like, I, I think the idea that we are kind of stepping away from a narrative mode where you need that kind of explanation into one where you don't, mm -hmm. um, I think is definitely correct. Um, yeah, no, I, th I think that's a, a thing to keep an eye on as we move forward. Um, at the, uh, as far as, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of conclusion of Ishmael's, or rather Ahab's, speech to Starbuck and Starbuck's reaction. Um, the like final thing that Ahab says that seems to really like convince Starbuck is the bit where Ahab kind of points out like, uh, you know, uh, basically, are you really going to be the, the odd man out? Are you going to be the only one who isn't And with, with an implication of cowardice too. Like, are you, yeah. you know, uh, not just stand up amid the general hurricane that I one tossed sapling cannot, but, you know, uh, also um, from this one poor hunt, then the best lance out of all Nantucket, surely he will not hang back when every foremast hand has clutched a whetstone. Yeah, it's like, okay, like, everyone down to, you know, little Pip the ship's boy is ready to murder this whale. Are you scared of that, yeah. <laughs> Starbuck? Yeah, yeah, no, and um, the aside here is so, is, is fascinating. Yeah, so so he basically, you know, um, Ahab says that, and then he says, like, ah, I see, you're, uh, you're convinced now, like, you can, you've got nothing to say to that. Thy silence, um, then, that voices thee. Yeah, um, and then the aside... Uh, which, again, yeah, it literally says aside in parentheses. Oh, I, love um, I love it so much. Ahab says to himself, Something shot from my dilated nostrils. He has inhaled it in his lungs. Starbuck now is mine. Cannot oppose me now without rebellion. Um, so, uh, you know, he's basically saying, like, I've infected Starbuck with my with, <laughs> with my sickness, with my, like, yeah, whale obsession. Yeah, and um, that which, line, cannot oppose me now without rebellion, is fascinating. Right, because I think even as he's saying, you know, I've infected Starbuck, Ahab is aware that Starbuck's not convinced in mm -hmm. the sense that, like, Starbuck still doesn't like this. Yeah. But he's become, a, he, Ahab has convinced Starbuck that he now can't voice those concerns without, you know, going directly against his captain, which mm -hmm. is an extremely, like, serious and dangerous thing for Starbuck and to do. And also I think... Part of what's going on, and I think why he says, thy silence, that voices thee, is that Starbuck's nature is loyal, dependable, Christian, all things that you do not associate with, at least in this time and place, rebellion. Yeah, like, Starbuck is basically in a position where, um, you know, uh, the, the Christian moral thing to do would be to hold a mutiny on some level, but, like... He is too Christian to do that. Yeah, uh, too like a certain kind yeah, of Christian his, to do that. I, I think mildness might be a Christian mildness, which is something Ahab has none of. Chill, basically. Starbuck has a certain kind of chill that Ahab does not, and it prevents Starbuck from being able. Like Starbuck can't just get in an argument with Ahab, even if, in theory, 
that is kind of the first mate's job sometime, sometimes. Uh, but Starbuck is not the person to do that. He will, you know, his silence voices him. His only way of yeah. uh, sort of pushing back is to say nothing. Yeah, or, or to say, as you know, he does actually say like something, but all it is is, God keep me, keep us all, murmured Starbuck lowly. So like, that's his rebellion in this moment, is to just kind of pray for divine help, because he sees no other way out yep. of this situation. It, it is to very explicitly invoke his sort of Christianness and the idea of providence to maintain things in direct opposition to Ahab's statements on the divine. Yeah. Um, and uh, after he says that, there's a, there's the bit you mentioned where we kind of slip back into um, narration for a little mm -hmm. while, uh, where it's kind of listed... You know, a number of basically foreshadowing yes. events that happen are all listed. So, you know, um, admonitions and warnings. Yes. Uh, so, so there was uh, there's there's Starbuck saying this little pious thing. There's a low laugh from the hold, which we've heard some suggestions earlier on that there's somebody in the hold that we don't know about, and I look forward to that appearing. However, the hell that appears, I'm sure you are sitting on your hands at the moment. <laughs> I really am. Uh, uh, and then, you know, also just like the, the sound of like the wind in the, in the, in the ropes and the sails. Um, because just in this moment, some creepy thing is happening. We don't know what it just suggests that things are going to be upsetting eventually. Um, but uh, all of that, passes just as quickly as it started um and and none of these warnings are heeded um and it's at this moment uh that the grog is ready um and so ahab takes the you know the like flagon that they have it in um and he starts uh basically at this point ahab starts conducting a little drama of his own um conducting well directing yeah. directing is what you do with a drama <laughs> and <laughs> um, another one to be clear yeah like one within we, we were already in but but he is he is now like giving people their their places and their parts to play in a very yes. explicit He's, way he um, has established his authority here and now he is arranging things to this new plan um and there's some really interesting dynamics here as well yeah, so the way that Ahab arranges everyone is he has the three mates standing by him, holding their lances, uh, and the harpooners are standing in front of him with their harpoons, uh, and everyone else is, like, circled around. Um, uh, so this is theater in the round. <laughs> uh, and uh, Ahab passes the grog around the crew. Um, so, I mean, like, the sailors, uh, not the harpooners and the mates. Um, and then once uh, all the crew have drunk... He, he basically has the mates and the harpooners perform a little ritual. Uh, so first he makes the mates all cross their lances. Uh, so like a, you know, three, a three-way cross. And he grabs them at the point where they cross. And in kind of an, an attempt to like directly transmit electricity from inside of himself to the mates. Yes. Specifically, uh, it's... Um, uh... It seemed as though by some nameless interior volition he would fain have shocked them into the same fiery emotion accumulated within the laden jar of his own magnetic life. 
But uh, it doesn't really work. The mates only seem cowed, not galvanized. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but he is not terribly concerned about this because he does think to himself like, oh, well, if it worked, it might have taken the charge out of me or it might have killed them. So, which <laughs> like, both. It, it, yeah, like, like Ahab has this sense that there is something in him that he has to like cultivate his his vengeance does not on some level come easily. And we'll see this more in the in the book to come that he has to be constantly sort of like turning away from these opportunities to cease being a terrifying force of nature and has to constantly like energize himself with this. So this, this sense that he could let out this vengeance and this spirit and, you know, it would probably kill a lesser man to contain it, but that he could lose it is very much present from this point on. Yeah. Yeah. Although, you Uh, know, his pipe failed. So what else is going to (laughs) work? Yeah. Uh, so, so he, you know, um, he, he, he moves along, um, the next step, uh, in, in the next step in this performance, um, is that the, uh, the mates need to serve as cupbearers to the harpooners, which is a, like, that is like a, a servant position. Yes. So it's, it's, this is another one of those places where, um, we can tell just from the dialogue how people are reacting. Um, he says, you know, I, I do appoint you three cupbearers, um, and then says, disdain the task? What, when the great pope washes the feet of beggars using his tiara for ewers? So he's basically like, the, the mates are like, uh, I don't really want to serve the man who is supposed to serve me. And Ahab yeah. is like, oh, come on, this is, a, this is a ritual thing. Like, people do this sort of thing all the time where they, like, the master ritually serves the servant. Like, calm down. <laughs> it's not, uh, which I do think is a little bit of a, uh, like, you know, Ahab, you are not doing the same symbolic no, thing he's here really not. that no. the Pope is doing. Like when when a when a Christian religious figure washes the feet of beggars, that is a you know that is a a, a repetition yeah. of like something that Christ did, and it, it symbolizes like humility and whatever. Um, there's probably there's all kinds of symbol symbolic yeah, angles to but that. The that beggar I is am not, not really competent to tell the Pope what to do. Yes. But, like, it is actually the case in certain circumstances that the harpooners do get to be in charge in a way that the mates don't, you know? Like, I think it it is made clear by this moment that, like, the harpooners are Ahab's men in a way that the mates are not. Absolutely. And Ahab knows it, and he kind of values them. Yeah, I mean, the the religious symbolism here is fantastic, because remember that the harpooners are the, like, are are the pagans. Like, they are the the officers from among the crew who are both, you know— None of them are white, they're explicitly non-Christian, and they have that kind of fire that Ahab clearly values, and in fact he's been talking about valuing it in the section before this. And this, his his use of the Pope here is a fascinating little thing, because he, he says, you know, um, oh my sweet cardinals, your own con- condescension, that shall bend ye to it. I do not order ye, ye will it. Like he's saying, I am not going to like force you to do this, but you're going to feel you will do it because you feel that it is, you know, uh, it is pro- it is in fact proper and acceptable for the Christian figure of authority to condescend to serve the, you know, the unfortunate, the pagan, the non-white. But in this case, what Ahab's actually doing, I think, is effectively and almost permanently flipping the valence here. He's He is upending this hierarchy. He is saying, I am putting their virtues over yours. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
and like this stuff about like oh this is just like uh this this is this is just something you are already familiar with this is something the pope does this is like noble condescension um i think all of that is a little bit like i mean i think of that as roughly equivalent to ahab saying like uh oh starbuck are you going to be the only scaredy cat where it's like this is something he is saying to convince yes you know this is something he's saying to like draw on the things that he knows will be effective on these yeah. men. This is not really how Ahab thinks yeah, about it. Yeah, absolutely. Ahab Ahab definitely, he doesn't disdain his mates, but he absolutely does not view them as being more valuable or sort of higher up in a hierarchy than the harpooners, except when it, you know, serves him. Ahab is autocratic in a very fundamental way. His, his approach, like, I think we actually discussed this, the idea that the normal uses of the ship are only for Ahab ways to approach his particular goal and he will completely dissolve them and redefine them as is necessary to attain that goal yeah um so uh he has the the harpooners um like cut the strings that tie the harpoon heads to the like poles that they're oh that's what a seizing is yeah um and uh he like uh, has them, you know, take the heads off the the shafts of the harpoons um, and turn them upside down so that the socket part can be used as a cup. Um, and uh, then uh, the the cup bearer mates uh, take take the harpoon heads um, and uh, you know hold them up for Ahab to fill with grog. I, I feel um, we should we should note here that this he. This is specifically uncut grog. Uh, he describes uh, earlier, Ahab uses the phrase, short drafts, long swallows men, tis hot as Satan's hoof. So this is not like, you know, we, we associate grog, I think, a lot in popular culture with very much watered down cut grog, because that's what would u- usually be served in most situations. You don't just give the men alcohol, you give them effectively water that has been flavored with alcohol. But in this case, this is clearly the uncut grog, like just the um, the store, and it's like it's practically steaming. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, 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 I don't know exactly. Like, I feel like because it's literally hot, they probably have mixed liquor mm. with hot water. But, but I, it is definitely like an unusually strong brew, and like people will continue to comment on that throughout the rest yes, of the chapters. Everyone's actually. like, "Oh my god, we got the good stuff." Ahab rules. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, uh, so he, uh, you know, he 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 fills the three harpoon heads, and the mates offer them to the harpooners, and the harpooners uh, down their drafts amid hearty anti-white whale cheering. Yes, and. Um, I do want to say there's a line here that is not like, I, I forgot it existed. I remember now it exists and I just love it. It's commend the murderous chalices. Like yes. these are, these are the, these are grails because remember we have that symbolism of knights and squires, but it's been inverted oh, now. Rather, you're the right. squire is now the, um, the one being served by the knight. This is, if this is Arthuriana, it's become uh, inverted and so has the symbolism of the chalice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you're totally right. Um, and uh, that's pretty much the end of the chapter. Um, Starbuck shivers in his boots like a little baby. Uh, <laughs> oh, man, I, I thought we were going to get through this without just being incredibly mean to Starbuck. But yeah, no, he absolutely does. 
I mean, look, the the second to last sentence in the chapter is Starbuck paled and turned and shivered. (laughs) Like, he is very scared. Yeah, no, Starbuck Um, is... Starbuck is basically unique among the crew in resisting Ahab's charisma in this respect, but it does make him a huge party pooper. Yes. Um, and uh, meanwhile, everyone else is having a second round and like very clearly setting up for a, a, a party for much of yes, the night. They are, uh, let's just say that if the white whale showed up the next day, they would not have had a good time of it. <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah, that's true. God, I do... Oh, I, there's a, a line here, again, Ahab is just such a, a rhetorician, such a, a speaker. It's death to Moby Dick. God hunt us all if we do not hunt Moby Dick to his death. And yeah. I just want to point out that we've been talking about how Ahab wants to strike through the mask and beyond this world to something outside of it. So, in a way, he is hunting God as well. God hunt yes. us all. Yeah, and, and this is this is what he's making the harpooners, and, and by extension, I think, really, the entire crew, yeah. like, the mates included, swear to do. Yes. Um, we bestow them, ye who are now made parties to this indos, indissoluble, uh, indissoluble league. I, I definitely pronounced that wrong. <laughs> that's fine. Um, yeah, so, yeah, the, the, everyone, everyone has, like... Sorry. Yeah. Everyone has sworn the blood oath. To hunt Moby Dick to the death now. It's us or God, um, man. <laughs> yep. Dead whale or a stove boat. Yeah. Or both. Or both. But, um, you know, I, I think in the logic of Ahab's world, it is really one or the other. Like, you, yeah, you no, don't yeah. kill a whale and also get your boat stove, and you certainly don't kill a whale after getting your boat stove. Yes, no, that's that's all true. Um, I or 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 I mean, like, I suppose you could you could kill a I whale think... and then and like in its death throes it gets you, but I don't think that idea is ever really raised in the entire book. Like, hmm. you know, not yeah, not I saying mean, guess... anything about final regions of the book. Just it's not mentioned in any of the discussions of whaling that precede actual whale hunts. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess one thing that I'm, I'm thinking about here is, like, I do wonder what Ahab's post-revenge plan is, right? And I think, like, the answer is, I don't think he has Oh, one. yeah, no. I, I don't think... I, I think that when you have, I mean, you have assembled your isolatos from throughout humankind who represent its, like, strongest capacities, when you have built them into a single will upon a ship and forged out onto the ocean, which is the most unknowable of things, to fight the white whale... I think that if anyone asks, so Ahab, uh, what are you doing when you get home? The answer is basically just an uncomprehending stare. I mean, I agree, but but I also think that to some extent, there is a, an implication in that, that he almost plans to die in the attempt. Mm. Um, like, not so much that I he think... He has a young wife. Like, I, <laughs> Sorry. Ben, you know he doesn't care about yeah, her. Yeah, he, his young wife, like, he, no, Ahab's just like, oh yeah, I've got a young wife. Huh. Eh. Cool. Yeah, she is irrelevant to his, like, <laughs> internal world. Um, yeah, but, like, uh, the, basically, um, I, I I don't think that Ahab is, you know, uh, basically, I don't think that Ahab is in any way, yeah, like, thinking about 
Like, you can imagine someone who, in pursuing revenge, would, part of their, like, thinking about this would be, like, and I'm going to come home with my mm-hmm. trophies and, like, show everyone how I beat God, yeah, right? Yeah. But I think, I mean, I almost think that Ahab might have a certain understanding that that is not how this can possibly go. That, like, even if he defeats Moby Dick, I don't think he imagines returning to normal life after that. Yeah, I I mean, you know what they say, um, when you... Uh, when you set out for revenge upon the white whale, dig one normal-sized grave and one incredibly large grave. <laughs> Just really big. Well, I have some good news for you, Ben. There's already an enormous grave. It's actually about the size of two-thirds of the earth. Both sides of the land. Oh, yeah, no... Uh, yeah, that that's just, uh, there's literally a bit later in our reading where somebody basically says, like, yeah, the ocean is a giant grave. Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, some, something along the line of, you know, uh, um, some, something about proper behavior when walking over graves, like how you feel when you walk over a grave, and then just sort of gesture at ocean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but meanwhile, we've got more Ahab. I'm yeah, rubbing my yeah, hands together, uh... I don't know if it shows up on the mic. It does a little bit. You're doing ASMR to me. I feel like you're about to, like, pretend to give me a dermatology exam. Um, yes, but a whale-themed one. Oh my god. If someone did, like, Moby Dick-themed ASMR... I, I would die. Very I would weird. explode. I don't know how I would comprehend that. I Like, they're... Okay. They're, I will... When we get to the chapter that I think you could make ASMR out of, I will mention it, and then also I will throw myself into the sea. Okay, I look forward to that very much. The thing that immediately came to my mind is like, well, you could totally, like, okay, a type of ASMR video that I often enjoy is, uh, like, someone's pretending to, like, give you a hot towel shave, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. No, I, I, those um, are enjoyable. And I'm not, saying, I'm not saying that people are shaving each other all the time on the Pequod, but, like, yeah, they could. <laughs> um, and, like, I can certainly see an ASMR artist being like, oh, it would be nice to, like, put my next video, like, set it on a ship mm. and have, like, boat noises and, and ocean noises in the background. Yeah, that you know makes what I mean? sense. Okay, I I think I have the conclusion of this line of thought, and we need to move on before it consumes us all, uh, which is <laughs> um, Ishmael shaves Queequeg on the Pequod ASMR, one hour, soft-spoken. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely, yes. Although, like, no, because we know that Queequeg shaves himself with his harpoon. Yes, but imagine Ishmael being like, no, you have to shave with a razor. At least let me show you what it's like. Anyways. <laughs> okay, anyway. yeah, that's... Yep, yep, moving that, on. I, I can imagine that. All right. Um, so the next chapter um, is uh, titled Sunset. Um, and this is, we mentioned some soliloquies. Uh, this is the first one. Um, it's it's basically, the whole chapter is is in... Ahab's like first person perspective. Um, yes, as if these are his, you know, his his internal thoughts or what he's saying to yes. himself. And it starts with the uh, the stage direction, the cabin by the stern windows. Ahab sitting alone and gazing out. Yes. So this is obviously, you know, he just left the revelers to re- retire to his cabin, and this is what he's doing now. Um, he uh, he he. He reflects that he has kind of uh, shocked everyone, um, using the metaphor of, of leaving a wake 
like a boat. God, I, I um, love this entire... I mean, I keep saying this is my favorite chapter. I love this chapter. It's like, I'm going to keep doing that all book. You're not going to get free of it. Uh, but <laughs> opening to this, I leave a white and turbid wake. Pale waters, paler cheeks, where'er I sail. The envious billows sidelong swell to whelm my track. Let them. But first I pass. Everything Ahab says is just incredible. Like, just the sheer juggernaut soul involved in saying, you know, like, imagining yourself as a ship or perhaps a whale pressing through the ocean and how your track is sort of erased by the, the swells. But first I pass. Yeah, he... This chapter is, I mean, like... Perhaps this is a bit of a strong statement, but, like, I think this is just what Ahab is like inside all the yeah, time. Yeah, agreed. This strong is just agreed. what is going on in his brain 24-7. Look, he is... If that's not true, I quit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, like, yeah, um, he uh, he reflects on, on his crown, uh, which is, like, clearly metaphorical he doesn't literally wear a crown he's not talking about like a hat that he wears as being a crown but it also seems like something that he just uh you get the sense that in his head it is just the case that he has a crown this and that it's iron like iron crown a, of lombardy yes it's like a it, it's like a, a spiritual metaphorical crown but also like it's definitely real it's definitely there you know yes um and, uh, God, this, like, this is, when I said that these were, like, Shakespearean soliloquies, this is intensely Shakespearean. Yeah, let, let me read this yes, paragraph. Yes, please do. You've gotten yes, to read yes, a lot absolutely. of good Ahab stuff. Yonder, by the ever-brimming goblet's rim, the warm waves blush like wine. The gold brow plums the blue. The diver sun, slow-dived from noon, goes down. My soul mounts up. She wearies with her endless hill. Is then the crown too heavy that I wear, this iron crown of Lombardy? Yet is it bright with many a gem? I, the wearer, see not its far flashings, but darkly feel I wear that that dazzlingly confounds. Tis iron, that I know, not gold. Tis split, too, that I feel. The jagged edge galls me so, my brain seems to beat against the solid metal. I, steel skull mine, the sort that needs no helmet in the most brain-battering fight. and I mean, I think what he's talking about here is like his authority, yeah. right? And and the, on some level, I think part of what he's talking about here is like, wow, I've inspired all of this excitement and revelry in the men, but I am not happy. I am not celebrating. I'm like feeling a, a jagged piece of iron scrape against my yeah, brain. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. That that phrase, I the wearer see not its far flashings. This This sense that he knows he can see what he inspires in others and he you know uses that but within his own mind while he's certainly you know holding up he is agonized by this drive towards revenge that that phrase uh she wearies with her endless hill the idea that his soul must be ever climbing to meet this challenge sisyphusian of course yeah yeah and uh it, it also definitely reminds me of um uh, we definitely already ran into the line, all mortal greatness is but disease, yes. right? That was something, was that like, uh, the fucking, like, prophet said that about Ahab or something? I, I think that um, might have been. The point is, someone yeah, said that someone about Ahab said that at some point. Um, 
And like, I think this is us seeing that in action, like, oh, this is what a person who is great in a diseased fashion, like, feels like inside. Um, and uh, he, he kind of, like, reflects that he can't enjoy the beauty of the sunset. Mm -hmm. um, because he, he, the specific way that he describes it, he says, gifted with the high perception, I lack the low enjoying power. Mm -hmm. so, so he knows that the sunset is beautiful intellectually. He can look at it and say, oh yeah, that's got to be a beautiful sunset. Yes. But he doesn't have the whatever like natural pleasure that people take from beauty. Mm -hmm. he, all he can feel is revenge. Yes, he, he describes it as damned most subtly and most malignantly, damned in the midst of paradise. And I, I do have to question whether is it because he's so consumed with revenge on a personal level, or is it because he can see the true thing, like that he can recognize the actual nature of the world, which is to say Moby Dick swims in it, and that, yeah. you know, he therefore is... Because the phrase damned in the midst of paradise brings to me, mind nothing so much to me as eating the apple from the tree of knowledge. Mm, yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, I also think, you know, certainly, like, there is a certain weird tension here where it's like, okay, Ahab wanted all the men to get really excited and, like, to have a party yeah. uh, upon learning what his true purpose is. Like, it's good for him that they mm -hmm. are, uh, that they see it as something that is, I mean, that's, like, fun, right? Like, they're yeah, excited yeah, they, to hunt the they white whale. Enthused. And that's, he wants that, but that's not how he feels about it. Mm. Like... He is, on some level, he told them, all right, guys, God is malignant. He hates us all. We're on a journey to personally spit in his eye. Are you with me? And everyone's response was like, that sounds like so much fun. <laughs> and Ahab is like, okay, I mean, sure. yeah, no, it yeah. will be very fun. But also, like, I'm not sure you all are actually getting, like, and he doesn't want them yeah. to get the the deep sort of tragedy mm -hmm. here right like he's not actually trying to communicate the depth of his woe to all his men yeah. but i think he is aware of that like contrast and how that is kind of like galling you know yes. like it's it's almost like damn i wish i could like look at this as a an awesome adventure and not as like you know i, I think he's conscious of the uh on some level, the impossibility of his task. Yes, I know. Mean, I mean, this next section really uh, speaks to that. Yeah, so he's, he's uh, he, on dismissing, he, he kind of like, is like, ah, oh, fuck this. <laughs> uh, like, dismisses the yeah, thought yeah. about um, how he can't be yeah, happy. Yeah, I, um, I think it's worth just dwelling on it for a moment because it's, you know, good night, good night. It's, he's moving away from the sunset. And it's worth noting that, like, think about how he describes that sunset I'm I'm in love with the long, I I keep saying that these are such good chapters. The diver sun slow dive from noon goes down. That has just that is such a poetic line. That's beautiful. I I yeah. absolutely love it and it's Ahab composed that, you know, within within the text. Ahab puts that together. Ahab thinks that Ahab thinks in these terms of art and uh beauty and yet he finds no enjoyment in them. They are simply a correct perception of the world, a correct description of its beauty, but it in no way moves him because he is so consumed. And I think that that sort of heightens the tragedy for me that he does have high perception. He doesn't just like look out and say, the sun's going down. I guess this would be beautiful for someone else, but I may have. No, it's he's he's like right. he is poetic, he is, you know, insightful, and yet also he is gnawed. 
Yeah. Um, so he, uh, his, his next thought um, is to kind of reflect on, you know, what he's just accomplished mm. also, tonight, if, right? In getting ever. If you want to read any of this, it's, it's really good. Yeah, yeah, I might, I might read a, a bit of this we've, stuff. Look, um, we've been handed a bunch of play script for a, for a book right now. We get <laughs> a bunch of it into a mic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think, yeah, why not? I'll, I'll just read this paragraph. Um, Twas not so hard a task. I thought to find one stubborn at the least, but my one cogged circle fits into all their various wheels and they revolve. Or, if you will, like so many anthills of powder, they all stand before me, and I their match. Oh, hard, that to fire others the match itself must needs be wasting. What I've dared, I've willed. What I've willed, I'll do. They think me mad. Starbuck does. But I'm demoniac. I am madness maddened. That wild madness that's only calm to comprehend itself. The prophecy was that I should be dismembered, and I, I lost this leg. I now prophesy that I will dismember my dismemberer. Now then, be the prophet and the fulfiller one. That's more than ye, you great gods, ever were. I laugh and hoot at ye, ye cricket players, ye pugilists, ye deaf burks and blinded bendigos. I will not say, as schoolboys do to bullies, take some one of your own size, don't pummel me. No, ye've knocked me down, and I am up again, but ye have run and hidden. Come forth from behind your cotton bags. I have no long gun to reach ye. Come, Ahab's compliments to ye. Come and see if ye can swerve me. Swerve me? Ye cannot swerve me, else ye swerve yourselves. Man has ye there. Swerve me? The path to my fixed purpose is laid with iron rails, whereon my soul is grooved to run. Over unsounded gorges, through the rifled hearts of mountains, under torrents' beds, unerringly I rush. Not an obstacle, not an angle to the iron way. Uh, so it is definitely worth, like, explaining in a little detail what he's going on about Yeah, of, of course, but um, I, I really, like, like you were saying, there's that sense of, uh, you know, I have moved them all, I have, I have turned them to my purposes, I have lit them afire, but on some level, you know, you need to waste a match to light this fire. I have, you know, I have used my energies on this, but I am not personally aflame in the same way. Or rather, he's aflame yeah. in a much more, a much deeper and more dangerous way. Yeah, like, I think there's a lot of different ways you could read what he means when he says the match itself must needs be mm -hmm. wasting. He, he could, to some extent, be suggesting the idea that, like, he is going to mm -hmm. die in this revenge, right? Like, I think, as I suggested, I think that idea is maybe already a little implicit. Yeah. He could also simply be talking about the fact that, like, he's a, he's a broken man, yeah. you know? Like, we've just been talking yeah. about how... Like, you know, I, I am, like, he is, to, to use the book's terms for it, he is mad. Like, his, his mind is hurt. Mm -hmm. um, and he's very, like, conscious of that as something that he doesn't, that he would prefer to be otherwise, yeah. right? But he also is very conscious of it as something that gives him power, something he can use. And so he's kind of, you know, he's like, yes, I am mad. I'm madness maddened. Like, I am double yes. mad, and, and I, I, I know that, and I don't necessarily like it, but also it makes me great. Yes. That um, wild madness that's only calm to comprehend itself is such a, like, that is such an image of a, a an impossible but terrifying power, the sense of, like, yes, I am, you know, I am beyond reason, I am driven in a way that is simply inhuman, but 
Also, I am perfectly capable of recognizing that and my own tendencies and acting around them and, and banking them to pursue that, you know, what he calls madness of his revenge. And it's an incredibly compelling portrait. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, he's uh, the, that bit about deaf Burks and blinded Bendigos. Um, those are two different uh, boxing champions. Oh. <laughs> um, yes. Well, what he's basically saying in that sentence is like, oh, the gods? They're just trying to fight me. Like, they're just trying to compete with me in some kind of sport. And I'm gonna win. You know? Like, I'm not going to do the kind of pathetic thing that you could do and say, like, oh, I don't deserve this. Pick on someone your own mm -hmm. size. I'm gonna stand back up and win the fight. Um, and, like, he's even, you know, he's basically saying that, like, God not... Well, okay, the gods. Because um, he is using yeah, plural pronouns this entire yeah. time so it's it's clear that he's thinking about kind of like pagan yes. gods more than christian he, God. i mean i think that's um, sort of inherent to his his process like if he thinks that he can win then he must necessarily be denigrating the position of god to some extent like you know compared to starbuck or ishmael who believe that there is a providence that is you know all powerful and all encompassing ahab can only believe that him going after Moby Dick is against that, or else, you know, what's what's the point? Yeah. This this reminds me, actually, so, so the line, swerve me? You cannot swerve me, else you swerve yourselves. Uh, I had seen that line recently, uh, because I saw someone on Twitter uh, put it on a, like, put that quote up uh, with a gif of Prince saying, like, uh, you know, famously, oh, you can't play me. When you play me, you play yourself. <laughs> Which is like, first of all, it's amazing to me that Prince and Ahab <laughs> have essentially the same way of expressing supreme self-confidence. Mm -hmm. But when Prince is saying that, he is saying it about other humans. Yes. Um, Ahab is saying it about God. Yeah, yeah. Ahab is literally looking at God and being like, look, if you were to try to deter me from my purpose... It would actually just hurt you. It would have no effect on me. Yeah, the, the phrase, you cannot swerve me, else ye you swerve yourselves, is fascinating. Because he says, man has ye there, not I have ye there. And I, I think yeah. that there's a sense in which, and I'm trying to make sense of this, I don't think I quite understand precisely what Ahab means here. But I think that... Yeah, it's a little obscure. I think that part of it is this idea that basically... As gods and the world, you know, gods here also meaning nature, and I think that's especially present in the use of plural gods, the idea of, you know, the fates, the natural forces, the pagan gods all having this sort of uh, materializable sense of the world. If you mm -hmm. try to change my purpose, the only way you can do that is by changing your own nature, because I am set against you because of the things you've done. Yes, I think that's correct. Like, I, I think also to some extent what he's saying, because he's been, he's like mocking yes. the gods for being absent, right? For having run and hidden. Um, and obviously on some level that could just literally be a reference to the fact that like, he's got to go find the white whale mm -hmm. now. Um, but but I also think that, you know, he, he, he's been talking about how like, the force that drives things like hides behind physical existence mm -hmm. as a mask right and so on some extent he's kind of saying like okay if you were to show up and try to swerve me like that would mean fundamentally changing your nature that would mean like appearing as a divinity in front mm -hmm. of me to confront my challenge yeah. to you 
And that itself would be a fundamental... Victory like, on his part. Yeah. It would be a reorganization of the relationship between man and God. Yeah. You know, it would mean that Ahab was the man who pissed God <laughs> off so much that God sent someone to personally tell him to cut it out. Yeah. Um, and he wouldn't. Yeah. No, he certainly yeah. wouldn't. He is... Uh, I, 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 I love the... The analogy here where Ahab's soul can't be stopped because it's a train. Yeah. Like, Ahab is on rails. Yeah, no, um, it's, um, I, I love the phrase rifled hearts of mountains. Like, the idea that you've, you've drilled a spiral tunnel directly through a mountain because the railway has to run through it. Like, it can't go around. Yeah, and I mean, that and is... And it's what we do. That yeah. is certainly what, yeah, people did do that. I mean, like, I, I guess people still yeah. do that, but also, like, quite literally, this time period is like when that was happening yeah, for no the first I, time, I think that's so. I, think, I think that's very much intentional that that phrase knots an obstacle knots an angle to the iron way this this dedication to i mean i think this is again drawing on this idea of humanity as a whole which is a really obviously fraught concept in a book that's so concerned with the pagan and the christian with these different like categories of human but this idea that you know this iron way represents something that can challenge the way the world is yeah it's definitely a sense of like you know um like railroads are probably one of the like hugest and like i guess most um like naturally destructive mm -hmm. uh like achievements of humanity <laughs> at the time you know like like uh like as he's saying like when people build a railroad they like m move and destroy yeah. and rearrange a lot of the physical yeah. world um it's sort of like this is the 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 pinnacle of humanity's achievement against god yeah. and i i'm very reminded also of something that's a little bit out of our way but we were talking modernism and uh there's a fray a term i think it's like um like time moves on its meddled way or something like that but like the the idea of rails and and meddled direction and uh sort of the rigidity of a, of a train the the unstoppable purpose and nobility of a train um which is shows up in you know modernist literature as well and since we're thinking about this as sort of modernist given that this is this kind of formal experimentation is very much associated with the modernist period sort of literarily I just think it's interesting, and uh, again, it's something I'd like to return to a little at the end of the uh, at the end of the podcast. I just thought I'd you know mention that's still here, and uh, that it shows yeah. up in some of the, even the metaphors that that are being yeah, used. Yeah, by the way, the, the 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 bit that you're talking about, um, the thing that you just sort of quoted was um, I just googled it. It's it's from Four Quartets. Four Quartets. Yeah, I think it's yeah by T. S. I'm trying to remember which of the Four Quartets it is, but I'm not going to. Well, <laughs> well. Feel free little to getting? you know Google it if it you might want be to. Getting. I don't know. I I'm not very familiar. Yeah, very with fair. Uh, I mean, you you really don't have to be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so shall yes, we shall we yes. move on to the next chapter? Yes, please. Okay, so chapter thirty-eight, dusk. Uh, this is Starbucks soliloquy. By the mainmast, Starbuck leaning against it. Yeah. So he's kind of. Um, you know, while this is going on, uh, everyone else is, like, partying. Mm -hmm. And Starbuck is standing on deck watching them and brooding. Oh, um, yeah, he's really brooding. 
Yeah. Um, he, he basically, he laments that Ahab has, has beaten, like, his own, has beaten Starbucks sanity with madness. His soul um, is more than matched. His, like, his, his basic yeah. moral and personal qualities, everything about him has been just thrown aside and asunder by the sheer force of Ahab. Yeah, and he's basically, you know, he he describes the position he's in where he pretty much has no option other than to help Ahab do something that he considers to be blasphemous. Mm-hmm. Um, and his only real hope here is that maybe they won't actually meet the white whale, the white whale, because, you know, there's a whole ocean and, and maybe God will not permit them to actually encounter yes. it. Time um, but... and tide flow wide. <laughs> And that's uh, that does that, that thought doesn't do a lot to cheer him up. No, um, <laughs> uh, the... like he 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 specifically says like you know he 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 thinks about that, um, and then he says, "I would apart were it not like lead." Like, oh well, that would make me feel a little better to think about. Except that I feel so bad about everything. Yeah, yeah. There's also, but my whole clock's run down. My heart, the all controlling weight. I have no key to lift again. This sense of just absolute exhaustion in the face of, <laughs> he actually, it's just, just, I love when a little, uh, like a sentence of deprecation or negative talk in an older book reads exactly like something someone would say on Twitter. Horrible old man. <laughs> it's, yes. it's like in, in Frankenstein, I'm sure I've quoted this, the bit where uh, the senior Frankenstein picks up what Victor's reading and says, Oh, Agrippa, don't read this sad trash. And he uses the yes. phrase sad <laughs> trash. And I just, the first time I realized that was just basically Twitter, I lost it. Yes. Yeah, no, horrible old man. I am always saying this. <laughs> oh, the um, next sentence is also really cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we didn't, uh, yeah, we should have mentioned this. I, I think I, I didn't quite follow this on my first read through, but um, uh, Starbuck says, who's over him? He cries. Aye, he would be a Democrat to all above. Look how he lords it over all below. And, uh, you know, I mean, Accurate. first of all, Ahab said, Ahab said, who's over me? And he kind of meant by that, like, no one can tell me what to do. <laughs> There's no God. <laughs> Nobody um, gets to tell me what or, to do. Specifically me, Ahab. I will tell all of you what to do. Right. Like, uh, you know, Starbuck is accurately pointing out here, like, um, yeah, of course Ahab would look at anyone above himself as actually being on his own level while simultaneously, like, stomping all over everyone below yeah, he, him. Ahab well, and- absolutely just takes for granted that if he can overpower someone and, like, push them to his purpose, that's justified and they should, whereas anyone who attempts to do the same to him obviously is affronting him and he will fight them with every ounce of his strength. Yeah, and, yeah. like... I do think that that is a, you know, a fair point of Starbucks, but I also find the idea of declaring yourself a Democrat to all above an inherently uh, deeply sympathetic and morally meaningful position. So, um, fuck you, Starbuck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, I, I, I think that, like, ah- Ahab is, is not really a democrat no no he's not right in that like (sighs) but uh, i guess like i mean we talked before about this sense that uh i think is there in the way that ahab talks about like his revenge Mm -hmm. that it's kind of like 
you know, why are all of you chumps not doing this yeah, too? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, why is everyone else not so mad at God? And like, you know, clearly there's the sense of like, okay, Ahab has been personally injured mm-hmm. in a way that drives him. But, you know, like, everyone on this ship has suffered. Yeah. Like, uh, Starbuck specifically has like lost family to the mm-hmm. deep. And so like, I think there is absolutely a sense that like, Starbuck has just as much reason on some level to to want to like take some kind of revenge on the world, to want to execute a dire purpose mm-hmm. as Ahab has, but he doesn't care about that and is not interested in mm-hmm. it. And like from Ahab's perspective, I think that makes him very pathetic. Yeah, no, I I think that so, so Starbuck will continue to be sort of Ahab's foil more than anyone else on board for the rest of the book. Um, I don't think that's mm-hmm. a spoiler. It's obviously what he's being sort of positioned to do. And right. the way he's a foil is going to be that, you know, he's going to try to convince Ahab to not do this. And it's mm-hmm. on some level, I think there is something kind of pathetic about him because he's he's not, you know, especially like right now. His, his response to Ahab is to, yeah, to shiver, to quake, to turn aside, to not to directly confront him or state his position, but sort of to hope that, if you know, that providence will make sure that things turn out okay, that Ahab will be directed away from the object of his vengeance so as to, you know, simply, and I notice that he doesn't like, he does state it in terms of, you know, uh, you know, what uh, God may wedge aside his purpose, may sort of set it aside until Ahab is forced to, you know, quiet down and go home. But uh, he's also, you know, purely making reference to the natural world. Time and tide flow wide. There's, you know, it's just improbable, if not impossible, to find the same whale again on purpose. That's just not a reasonable thing to do. And so, ironically, Starbuck is both putting his hope in God and in a purely materialistic and probabilistic sense of nature. And I think that is, again, important in the same way the Protestant work ethic is important to Starbuck, because he really does stand for Nantucket society in a really fundamental way. He is sort of the exemplar of the virtues of the whaling ground, of the American whaling ground specifically, being, in a sense, you know, fearless in the face of death, dedicated, industrious, um, you know, frugal, not, you know, he doesn't have any vices, he doesn't hold a grudge, like all of these, he's pious, all of these qualities are sort of set him up to try and hold back Ahab from his dire purpose. Yeah. Yeah, I also think it's, it's, you know, it's interesting to note that, like, he certainly doesn't seem to in any way believe that, like, God is going to send a miracle oh, yeah, no, definitely to save them, not. you know? And, like, you know, on some level that's not mm-hmm. surprising because I don't think your average Christian in the 19th century was expecting yeah. miracles all the time. Uh, but certainly I think we will encounter religious people mm-hmm. in this book who, who do expect miracles. Yes, who have miracles. slightly more heterodox um, positions on uh, how much God gets involved in these things. Yeah, but, like... Um, but yeah, it is through just like the sheer chance of the ocean being huge that he expects to be saved. Yeah. Um, or or like, you know, he also, so we haven't quite finished summarizing this chapter. Um, the next thing that happens after he talks about his heart being an all-controlling weight 
uh, is that there's there's a stage direction, a burst of revelry from the forecastle, um, and so happy this uh, it just it warms my heart. <laughs> yeah, uh, for those at home, the word forecastle is spelled F O R E C A S T L E, so it looks as though it should be pronounced forecastle. I'll be honest, for a decent chunk of my life, I said forecastle, and I thought the forecastle was a separate part of the boat, because when I was out on a boat with, like, my grandparents, who loved to sail, they would reference the forecastle, and we did not, like, have a meaningful forecastle, it was like a little boat, but they would reference it, and I didn't quite understand that this was the same thing as the forecastle from the books I was reading. (laughs) Yeah. Um... Anyway, so uh, his, his reaction to hearing that quote-unquote burst of revelry um, is, is to go like, Oh, God, right. I'm trapped on this ship with all of these fucking heathens. <laughs> yeah. Which, I mean, like, I mean, yes, he is trapped on this ship with all of these, like, you know, people who don't share his values and who are, like, totally gung-ho for this ridiculous, blasphemous mission. Um, uh, he, he even, like, he pretty much says that they are, like worshipping the devil yeah Um, he also basically says they're not human like uh they have such small touch of human mothers in them whelped somewhere by the sharkish sea yeah like they're all basically like he he basically sees the crew of the pequod in this moment as being like the like just spring up out of the ocean with like their teeth as daggers ready to hunt the white whale and i have to say uh, in a book that certainly has its racial missteps, come on, Starbuck, that's racist. I mean, yeah, this like, is like, I think racist, it's, obviously. But I, what I mean is I think it's intentional. Starbuck is resistant to this image of humanity that Ahab has assembled, not just because he is resistant to this sort of purpose, but also because he is distraught at the idea of kinship and fellowship with the with the other with these people unlike for example ishmael who is similarly a very christian individual but who has a much more relaxed perspective on you know heathens quote unquote yeah yeah and like i also think it's worth noting you know that uh yes the crew of the pequod is like mostly not white christians Mm -hmm. but all of them are very on yes. board with this plan, you know. Like we're as we'll yep, see yep. in the in the chapter where we get all of those anonymous sailors. Like actually, most of the ones that we hear from are like yeah. Europeans. I mean, I think it's something um, like a fifty fifty mix. I think was stated in one of the earlier sections. I can't remember the precise proportions of the Pequod's racial melt makeup. <laughs> right, and like you know, it's clear that like what to some extent. Uh, to some extent, what Starbuck is talking about here is their, like, you know, their bloodthirstiness, yeah. right? Like, their excitement for this task that he views as as mm-hmm. demonic. Um, uh, but yes, it is absolutely uh, 100% Starbuck is, like, terrified to be surrounded by non-whites yeah. in this moment. And, and specifically, he's got this line at the end here, which is... Um, uh, oh, life, tis an hour like this with soul beat down and held to knowledge. Like, I'm forced to acknowledge this truth. As wild, untutored things are forced to feed. Oh, life, 
tis now that I do feel the latent horror in thee. But tis not me, that horror's out of me, and with the soft feeling of the human in me, yet will I try to fight ye, ye grim phantom futures. And, like, he's, he's pretty much explicitly stating that he thinks that, like, the natural world, like, something in life that is vibrant and intense and terrifying has been, like, expunged from him, or presumably by civilization, Christianity, what have you, and this is sort of reminding him that it exists. Yeah, like, I I think, you know, um, like, it on some level, I think this bit where he's talking about the latent horror in life, um, he is basically acknowledging the same thing that Ahab mm-hmm. believes, mm-hmm. which is that the material world is, like, fundamentally harmful and, like, bad to be yeah. in, yeah. you know? Um, it's just that, you know, Ahab's response to that is like, I'm angry about that and I'm going to try to fight it. Whereas like Starbuck's response to that is like, I mean, he is going to fight it, but he's going to fight it in like a spiritual sense. He's like, I'm going to try to have like what is soft and human in me overcome what is like terrible in the world, in Mm -hmm. life. Um, uh, but, uh. If Ahab, if Ahab asked him, Ahab would also swear to fight, but he would do it, I think, by, like, physically hurting someone. I don't think he would do what Starbuck is about to do, which is, you know, as you say, like, try to kind of subtly shift things. Yeah, no, I I think you're right. I think, I, I don't know that Ahab would try to directly fight it, but he would try to master his situation and throw himself against it. If he was opposed to what was going on around him, he would never fall silent. Yeah. One thing we've... Or if he did fall silent, his judgment and opinion would be so crystal clear. Because that's the thing we've seen of Ahab. Yeah. He, he, when he's brooding and, you know, when he broods, everyone knows it. Yeah. When Starbuck broods, he goes off to a corner of the party to lean against the, you know, the, um, the mast and wait for his mom to come and pick him up. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I also feel like there's a certain sense here in which, like, you know, when Ahab thinks about the world as fundamentally cruel, he understands that as something that, even though he understands himself as, like, opposed to that, right? Like, he's kind of trying to fight back against the world that's hurt him. Mm-hmm. But also, the world has hurt him. It's left that mark on him. It That horror is in him, and he, like, acknowledges mm. that. And I think when yeah. Starbuck says, that horror's out of me... I mean, you could say perhaps he's correct because Starbuck is not, like, damaged in the way that Ahab is. But but I yeah. really think it does come across more as, like, Starbuck, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, like there's denial. Yeah, there. like, the horror of life is in you. Like, you are of life. You are of the world. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like, you can't you can't hold yourself aside and be like, no, no, I'm pure. I'm soft and human. Like... It's not my fault. I don't understand how I ended up in this bad situation. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I. We're really going hard on Starbuck. I don't think it's unwarranted, but I do want to point it out. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. Starbuck is. He is an interesting character, and I do like him in the book. But he is absolutely there. I think, on some extent, to make Ahab look good. Yeah. Like, he is making his argument, and I. It will be up to the re- individual reader to decide whose argument in the end wins out. I mean, if... Or whether either of that, both of them are wrong. 
but also I think that what I what I understand is a sort of traditional or classic reading, which is that Starbuck is supposed to be the voice of reason, I find that reading very uncompelling. Yeah. I mean, to me, the vibe of, like, the la- you know, the stuff so far in, in like, this, uh, you know, this this episode with, mm-hmm. with Ahab and Starbuck is that it feels like, um, you know, uh, Starbuck is, like, the, the face who's getting beat on by Ahab the heel to, like, <laughs> you know, put Ahab over. Like, oh, my God, look how scary Ahab is. Like, look at this, you know, admirable, like, Christian father. He's completely cowed by Ahab, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I I can see that. I can definitely see that. And, you know, we'll we'll have to come back to this idea over the course of the novel. Yeah. We've got so much to go. It's so good. Yeah, let's uh, uh let's let's move along to uh mm-hmm. the next chapter. Uh so the next one, chapter 39, First Night Watch. Uh this is Stubb's soliloquy. Stubb solace and mending a brace. Yes, that's right. On the foretop. So he's way up in the rigging. Yes. Um and uh, he's kind of been, he has, it seems, been, like, turning over the events of this evening in his mind. Uh, and he, he opens the speech by, by laughing uh, and then saying, like, you know, I've been thinking about it. And, and that's the final consequence, because a, a laugh is just the, well, he says, a laugh's the wisest, easiest answer to all that's queer. Uh, and come what, what will, one comfort's always left. That unfailing comfort is, it's all predestinated. So, like, he's kind of... It seems like the way Stubb has decided to resolve his feeling of, like, discomfort and, and his sense of, like, you know, how much he's disturbed by all of this by just saying, like, uh, well, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. I may as well laugh. Um, yeah, no, he's he is an absurdist in the in, in the most straightforward way. And, you know, I, I feel like there's not a ton to chew over here because he's very straightforward about his position yeah i mean stub is just joker pill that's fine (laughs) oh god oh no uh why must you hurt me so oh i've been harpooned he uh he he does he he doesn't know what it was that ahab said to starbuck um but he did notice Mm. them having like kind of a conversation so this was this is the passage that like ben read aloud earlier where like ahab was telling starbuck about his dread purpose Stubb doesn't know about any of the content of that. He just kind of seems to think about it as like, oh, well, I got a t- I got my talking to from Ahab not that long ago, uh, you know, back in chapter 29. And uh, now Starbuck's gotten his. Um, and um. Uh, he just kind of decides whatever happens, I'm going to react to it with a laugh. And he starts distracting himself by singing and wondering about uh, the other men his girlfriend might be fucking back at home. And yeah, no, he's, it's, it's not just like, he's, it's not just, oh, I wonder if my girlfriend's sleeping with other men. It's, it's, um, what's my juicy little pair at home doing now? Crying its eyes out, giving a party to the last arrived harpeneers, I dare say, gay as a frigate's pendant, and so am I. Yeah, he's basically like, yeah, she's probably having sex with some other people right now and having a great time. And I'm also having a great time. (laughs) Yeah, there's, there's definitely a degree to which... Yeah, no, um, I, I I hate that I'm going to say this, but yeah, you're you're right. He's Joker pilled. Yeah, like he's absolutely just like he's not just laughing at everything, but he's laughing at himself as well. Yeah, and like it's making him not care about anything. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, a very like this is a total little detail, but but I think it is like 
interesting. Um, so he, he like, he quotes a poem also. Um, and, and the poem is something that was written by Charles Fenno Hoffman, who is a, like a friend of Melville's, um, and who, I mean, uh, the way that both my, the way that both powermobydick.com and Wikipedia phrase it is that Hoffman went insane in 1849. Um, wow. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it seems that he like had some kind of breakdown, he had some kind of breakdown and was institutionalized for life after that. Um, I think, you know, we are talking about the diagnoses of 1849, right? So like, yes, certainly. I just, the, the using that poem from that friend here is a lot. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I, I don't think that it is entirely possible. Like, I, I think for us reading it, it's kind of a lot because the, the, the poem that's being quoted is literally just about like, ah, oh, we'll, we'll drink to love tonight. You know, um, it's very mm-hmm. like frothy, um, uh, almost literally because it's about drinking wine also. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I feel like the, um, the intended vibe on Melville's part may have been more just like, uh, let me quote my friend who is like currently having a hard time. Uh, but from our vantage point of knowing that the man spent 30 years in an institution after that, it is kind yeah. of eerie. Um, yeah. Like it, it, and I think it, it, it contributes to, uh, like... The effect. Yeah, to, like, the, the vibe here, which is, like, we are just going to laugh and have fun while, like, horrible suffering is happening, at least partially to us. Yeah, yeah. There's also another aside, which is really great. Yeah, so the end of this is um, Mr. Uh, is, is Starbuck apparently like calls him to go do something, which, again, we only know that because he says in his dialogue, who calls Mr. Starbuck? Um, aye, aye, sir. And then his aside is, he's my superior. He has his, too, if I'm not mistaken. Um, which I think is kind of Stubb being like, well, he can order me around, but we all know who can order him around. Yeah, which actually derives pretty directly from Ishmael's sentiments very early on, which is that, you know, uh, we've all got to take a few kicks. Yeah. We've all got our, our place in the, uh, in the in the hierarchy, so to speak, which does align Ishmael and, and Stubbs sort of humorism here, where he's just sort of like, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll laugh it off. And I don't think Ishmael is quite as given to, like, laughing at people. Stubb is mean-spirited a little bit in that respect, even towards himself. Yeah, but no, you're... Or at least, maybe not mean-spirited. That might be a bit unfair to little Stubb. I think he's definitely pretty mean-spirited at times um yeah that's fair uh, but no I do, I do agree that like I, I think there's a certain like stub like ishmael um and and also like starbuck um is resigned to like the fundamentally cruel like hierarchies of the pequod you know um and like doesn't have any desire to or any like belief that he could change or resist those things you know um but uh that sort of like resignation to their positions is it's something that like earlier on in the book you and i talked about this a lot and we often talked about it in a kind of like political sense where it's like well Mm -hmm. of course as like uh modern leftists we look at Ahab, or not Ahab, we look at Ishmael having this, like, total deference to his boss, and we're like, oh, this is, like, kind of yeah. sad, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't want to feel that 
like bordered around. Um, yeah. But now, like, it's not just a matter of like the kind of normal. Uh, indignities of sailing. It's also that, yeah. like, that boss's purpose has been revealed and it's, like, fucked up. <laughs> um, yeah, I I do want to say, I, I take offense at the phrase indignities of sailing. Indignities of crewing, maybe, but sailing is a beautiful and noble thing. <laughs> okay, yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just meant, like, uh, you know, if you yeah. have to listen to what someone tells you to do or else they're gonna kick you, like, that isn't... Yes. There's not a lot of yeah. dignity in that. <laughs> yep, that's, that's fair. And I, I do think that sort of on the in the other direction, there's also an element of now we've got it in sort of a, you know, the, the previous theological framework that Ishmael put forward is now active in a sense, because now there's this, you know, Ahab is a force of nature. Moby Dick is a force of nature. You are now moved between these uh, these poles of divinity and anti-divinity, and you are, you're going to take your lumps, and it's not going to be just because the guy in charge is a tyrant. Because you're swept up in it now, and you're going to be dealing with these higher forces, these themes, these, you know, powers beyond the stage. And so, you know, on some level, having some way of taking those lumps without immediately uh, breaking down as you realize that you exist in a world where the drama is definitely not concerned with stub... It's probably a little healthy. I don't know. Yeah, no, that's that's entirely fair. I, I do not think we should all be Ahabs. Um, yeah, I mean, I... I'd like to think I'd rather be Ahab than Stubb, and but also being Ahab clearly sucks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's a quotation that I don't think we've hit yet, which is explicitly about that question of would you rather be Ahab than Stubb, even though being Ahab sucks so much. Well, I look forward to that. Yeah. Uh, but I think we may as well uh, mm-hmm. move along to the last chapter today, mm-hmm. uh, which is chapter 40. Midnight Fuxel. Forsol rises and discovers the watch standing, lounging, leaning, and lying in various attitudes, all singing in chorus. Yeah, so this scene this scene is like extremely play shaped because we've actually got like lots of different characters having like brief lines. Um and, yep. and like action and stuff. Yep, and songs and like this is really where I was like, oh, that previous thing with Ahab, that was like a, a blank verse uh soliloquy by a you know a, a shakespearean king and uh this is you know one of the clown interludes this is a falstaff scene yeah totally um and it opens with uh the the harpooners and the sailors singing spanish ladies um and then which is a song the tune of which i can never remember like this is a song that my family theoretically likes but i always forget how it goes <laughs> uh and and uh there's a, the first Nantucket sailor interrupts that song and is like, oh, don't be sentimental. Let's sing a different one. Um, and proposes, <laughs> uh, the ne- there's then, there's another song rent- written, which is kind of Melville's hybrid of two uh, real songs. Oh. Yeah. It, Greenland Whale Fisheries and The Bonnie Ship, The Diamond both mm-hmm. are, go into this. And then also, like, I mean, as typical when Melville quotes poems and uh, songs and stuff like that, I think he kind of like, changes up a lot of the words here. Um, like, when mm-hmm. I say... I mean, especially because these are these are sea shanties, so there are no, like, official lyrics to any of these, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, so these are just, you know, the versions of these songs that appear in Moby Dick. Um, yep. Uh, so people are singing that. Uh, and then one of the mates... 
there seems to be just like a mate on duty at this point, and it's not clarified mm-hmm. which one it is. Um, I I suspect it's Starbuck because he um, he does uh, say I think in his uh, in his lines um, something about uh, like um, cut it starting out. the watches. Yeah, yeah. PC revelers and set the watch. That's it. Yeah, and that 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 would be Starbuck's responsibility as first mate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Anyway, so he calls eight bells, which means it's midnight, it's time to switch the watches. Um, and, uh, so, you know, uh, everyone kind of starts doing that. Um, uh, there's a, a Dutch sailor kind of muses on how everyone who's asleep is sleeping very deeply. Um, specifically the way he phrases that is, grand snoozing tonight, matey, fat night for that. which is just great like it really is i wish someone would say that to me every night before i go to sleep um uh and he kind of like suggests that that's because everyone had that like extra strong uh grog that like that's knocked Mm -hmm. some people out and that's made everyone else like stay up late dancing you know um Mm -hmm. and uh then uh a French sailor proposes that they have a jig and starts hassling Pip to play the tambourine. Um, Pip being, like, I think he's been, like, mentioned slightly before. He's, like... Yeah, he's, he's the cabin boy. Yeah. Um, and, uh, he's, he... The, the stage direction for him saying he doesn't know where the tambourine is is sulky and sleepy. Clearly he's... Same. He's up past his bedtime. Um. Uh. <laughs> anyway, uh... A, a, a number of sailors react to the plan of, of having a jig. Um, there's an Icelander who's like, oh, uh, I don't like dancing on this floor. It's too springy compared to ice, which is what I'm used to dancing on. Um, it, <laughs> I'm sorry to throw cold water on the subject, but excuse me from the Iceland sailor. It's just like, really? Really? I like puns, and that one made me unhappy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it's very clear to me that, like, all the sailors are behaving in ways that are in some ways stereotypical of the place that they're from. Yes. Um, yeah, absolutely. At least some... Like, they are really strongly, like, proposing their identity through their words. At least some of these stereotypes are ones that, like, I don't think I really, uh, like, know anything about. Like, I don't know why a French sailor would be the one to propose a jig, but, like... Yeah, and I don't know why a Maltese sailor is the one who goes... Okay, but where's the girls? I can't dance without girls. Yeah, the Maltese and the Sicilian sailor are the two who are horny. Um, because yep. they're the two who respond to the idea of dancing as like, oh, what's the point if there aren't any girls? Um, and uh, uh, a, a, a Long Islander says, like, oh, come on. Like, we may as well dance while we're still alive, basically. Um, yep, yep. Also, hoe corn when you may, say I. All legs go to harvest soon. Yeah, I I assume, you know, Long Island is a place with farms on it. That's probably the logic there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, uh, somebody, an Azor sailor, finds the tambourine and tosses it up on deck, and so now Pip has to play the tambourine. Um, oh, there's such a good line here, which is... Go it, Pip. Bang it, bellboy. Rig it, dig it, stig it, quig it, bellboy. Make fireflies. Break the jinglers. Yeah. And all of those are amazing things to shout at someone while throwing a tambourine at them. I think my favorite is make fireflies, like, and break the jinglers. Like, make sparks come from the tambourine. I don't know if that's even possible. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. 
Um, I mean, sometimes when you're playing a tambourine, you you tap it against something instead of tapping it against your hand, right? So I think if he was mm. tapping a metal tambourine against something metal on the deck, he might be able to make sparks. Just smashing it against a bracket. <laughs> yes. Uh, and there's a dance. And uh, in addition to, you just quoted, that was the Azor sailor, and like several mm-hmm. other sailors are also like, come on, Pip, like, go off. <laughs> like, yep, yep. Um, also, one of the stage directions here about everyone dancing is oaths aplenty. <laughs> everyone Drop is just the beat, Pip. Everyone is just dancing and swearing. Um, yeah, it's it's a lot. And then um, uh, Tashtego and the old Manx sailor uh, both show up to you know comment as the cranky old wise sailors. Yeah, yeah. Tashtego quietly smoking. Uh, basically, he's like, uh, I'm not interested in this white people fun. Um, and, uh, the old Manx sailor, this is where I mentioned this before, he points out, like, you know, you are all literally dancing over a grave because the ocean is a giant grave of everyone who's ever been drowned. And, like, normally people use that as, like, a a curse, you know, like, oh, someone will dance over your grave and you all are just doing that for fun, huh? Well, have fun! Yep. (laughs) Well, well, belike the whole world's a ball, as you scholars have it. He's, he's, you know, flat earth truther. Um, and so tis right to make one ballroom of it. Dance on, lads. You're young. I was once. And presumably this is the same old Manxman who also ha- proposed one of the theories about Ishmael's, like, white scar. Yeah, I can't imagine they have multiple old Manxmen. Yeah, like, that would be pretty surprising, yeah. Unless they were, like, it, brothers. It would be a surplus. You only need, like, we have precisely one of all of these nationalities. Why would Manx get two? <laughs> I mean, Long Island gets a long Nantucket gets a number, but I think it's the only one that we have plural sailors for. Yeah, there's, like, at this... Throughout this, it's like uh, first Nantucket sailor, second Nantucket sailor, third Nantucket sailor. Um, And uh, let's see, uh, everyone like takes a break from dancing for a little bit um, and uh, the wind picks up, suggesting maybe there's going to be a storm soon. Um, uh, the, the, The Maltese and Sicilian sailor... Just uh, talk about how hot girls are for a little bit. Yeah, no, they're really just super into it. Uh, the Sicilian sailor goes, A, pagan, and nudges the Tahitian sailor, yeah, and- who's just absolutely willing to go with this. Well, it's, I think it's very charming, actually, because they're, they're, yeah, they're trying to get this Tahitian guy to, like, join in on them and just thinking about, like, sexy girls. And, and he does at <laughs> first. He's also like, oh, yeah, I remember, like the girls of my homeland, but then it also just kind of sends him into, like, a homesick reverie, and he just starts talking about Tahiti. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, then, you know, everyone keeps talking about the weather. Um, and, uh, the fourth Nantucket sailor points out that, um, the mate at the helm has orders to, uh, to, to sail right into the storm. Um, the idea being... Uh, I heard old, old Ahab tell him he must always kill a squall, something as they burst a water spout with a pistol. Fire your ship right into it. Uh, because God, I love Ahab. He's so good. This, like, he's, I he's guess... Going to get them, he's, he's going to cause terrible trouble. He's so great. <laughs> this is like a kind of, uh, you know, a, a superstition that you could, uh, like, break a water spout by firing a gun into it. Um, mm-hmm. 
I do want to return very briefly to one of these sailors who's very, I think, only slightly mentioned, which is the Laskar sailor, which, um, so Laskars, if I remember correctly, was like a population of sailors from around the Indian Ocean. Yeah. Uh, and there was like a specific uh, boating culture of these, which I, I know because the um, uh, River of Poppies, is it River of Poppies? I think so. Um, or no, Sea of Poppies by... Um, I think it's Amitav Ghosh, is a, it's a very fun, similarly, like, widespread uh, sailing uh, epic, much in this, I think it's probably, he, you know, he certainly has read Moby Dick, and I, he may have uh, sort of uh, taken some inspiration from it, all about the opium trade in British India in, you know, the lead up to the opium wars, and a lot of the uh, characters on the ship that they end up on are Lascars, which turns out to mean this really wide variety of ethnicities and um, and religions coming together into sort of a boiling pot. So it's, it's interesting that that specifically is the term used here rather than, you know, Indian or Arabic or anything like that, even though the character is very specifically uh, Indian because he does make reference to uh, Shiva and Brahma in his very brief religiously themed, oh, wow. That looks like a big storm. Yeah. Yeah. So when you say, yeah, yeah, like, um, I, I, I imagine that it's very possible that in, like, Melville or Ishmael's mind, Lasker is basically just a synonym for, like... Sailor from India? Yeah, exactly. Um, like I, oh, in, in, entirely possible. I just think that it's, it's interesting that that's the particular term that this is trying to represent the whole body of people who go out on the waves. Yes, absolutely, yeah. Um, and yeah, he Melville definitely draws more distinctions between between Europeans than he does among other ethnic groups. Yeah. Like, you know, we have, a, you know, Portuguese, Danish, and English, and, oh, speaking of English, the English line is the most amazingly stereotypical of them all. Yeah, well, I was just thinking that this English sailor has the exact same response that you did to the thing about Ahab wanting them to sail right into a, a storm, which is, that's so cool. Yeah, but he says it like a, like a, a puppet from the, from an 80s satire show. <laughs> yes, he says, blood, but that old man's a grand old cove. We are the lads to hunt him up his whale. Yeah. I just, it's one line and it's like... 5,000% English. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. So, um, uh, you know, everyone, uh, everyone agrees Ahab is incredibly hardcore, and, and they all yell, I, I. Um, uh, and then, uh, the next thing that happens is that, um, a, uh, basically a Spanish sailor decides to, like, uh, pick a racist fight with Dagu. Um, yeah, which I have to say, what a bad idea. He's one of the harpooners. He's repeatedly described as just super strong. He's made it clear that he's, um, you know, feeling, uh, that he's, you know, feeling, you know, put upon by people being like, oh, the sky's gone black, horrid, awful black. Right. And like, and Degu's like, hey, hey, fuck off. Right. Um, and a Spaniard is just like, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm gonna pick a fight. It's just like, man, this is this is a bad idea on moral and practical levels. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Um, I mean, I think you know uh, the uh, the. <laughs> he also 
Sorry, just go on, sorry. I mean, the thing you said about how, like, picking this fight is a very stupid idea, I think this is, that's clear in the story, right? Because first of all, the Spanish sailor, before picking the fight, has an aside where he says, ah, the old grudge makes me touchy. So he's literally saying, like, ah, I'm so racist that hearing this black man (laughs) say that he's black makes me mad. Oh (laughs) man, that must be a reference to, like, the Reconquista. Jesus. I would think so, yeah. Um, Wow, I did not think of that. Uh, and then, you know, the, uh, the, and then also another sailor, um, who it's, it's written in, in the text as like St. Jago's sailor. Uh, but yeah, that I mean, did not know what that meant. Well, uh, powermobydick.com cites it as meaning yeah. from Santiago in the Cape Verde archipelago off the Western coast of Africa. Oh, St. Yeah, I see it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is, this is another black sailor, right? But he's also saying that Spaniard's mad or drunk. Like he's also looking at the situation and being like, wow, that guy's going to get his ass kicked by Dagu. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Also to be clear, dude says something just straightforwardly like racist, like, curse of ham style old school racist and then says no offense yes <laughs> which it is amazing to me it is just fucking awful and he deserves every every beating he's about to get yeah although i mean so they start fighting and everyone's super excited for a fight just in the same way that they were excited to cheer for ahab and they were excited to have a dance right yep um yep. uh and uh uh, Tashigo comments on it that uh, gods and men are both fighting tonight because, you know, there's a storm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but while all of this is going on, uh, the mate from the quarterdeck calls out for everyone to, you know, start making the ship ready for the storm. Um, so they have mm-hmm. to stop fighting and disperse. Um, and uh, then the end of the chapter is Pip hiding under the windlass. Oh, poor Pip. Yeah, just talking about how fucking terrifying this entire situation is. Like, and, like, the thing is, like, I perhaps this is a little unfair to me when I was, like, being such a jerk to Starbuck earlier, but Pip is a literal little child, and he, like, gets yeah, kicked no. by everyone. So, like... Pip is an incredibly tragic figure, because he is a child, he is trying his best, and he just gets... The worst of it in the narrative. It's yeah. it's unfortunate. I mean, I'm pretty sure we've already been told that he's not going to survive the journey. I remember there being a bit where yes. Ishmael, for some reason, went out of his way to tell us that Pip specifically is going to die. Um, yeah, and the thing is, that's not even the worst of it. Yeah. Like, yes, Pip's not making it out. We know that, like, five, ten chapters ago. But uh, actually, probably more. There's a lot of chapters in this book. Um <laughs> Like, this was went back when they were talking about the Isolados, um, which was a while ago. But also, Pip is just going to get some of the worst of it just in terms of experiences he has to put up with. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I do think it's actually maybe worth uh, noting, like, since... Like, I didn't really think about it beyond the obvious racial implications, but as he's crouching under the windlass and, like, feeling all this fear, uh, Pip yeah. also prays, and what he says is, Oh, thou big white god aloft there somewhere in yon darkness, have mercy on this small black boy down here. Preserve him from all men that have no bowels to feel fear. And so, like, obviously on some level what he's saying is, like, uh, you know, this is the god that, like, I've been taught to believe in. Because I, Pip, yeah. Pip, we have been told, is, like, you know, he's he's American. Um, yeah. So he 
probably has quite literally been taught to believe in like a white Christian God. Um, yeah. But I do also think it's interesting that he's noting that God is white in this moment when yeah. we've been talking about yeah. the white whale and the possibility that I'm, that white whale is God. Yeah, I'm going to point out that the next chapter is chapter 41, Moby Dick. Yeah. So we are absolutely being primed here to think about a big white god and a big white whale. And yeah, neither of which is going to be very good to poor Pip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he, Pip is basically watching everything that's just happened this entire chapter, which is just like the rowdiest sailors, right? Like they are just all fired up with bloodlust for whales. Uh, And he is like, wow, they're not afraid of anything. And I am so afraid of all of them. Yeah, yeah. No, Pip is... Ah, Pip is getting dragged along. Pip did not ask for this. Pip, like, is... Was the one carrying... or Like, was one of the ones carrying around the grog. Pip is just involved in all of this, but is absolutely not, like, part of the crew setting out to kill the whale. I hope Pip and Doughboy get to commiserate sometimes. Yeah, yeah, no, they both... um, The people on the ship who are not technically crew, but are performing, like, vital support functions are definitely not in a good place because they're not like they're not getting fired up with Ahab's purpose because their purpose is to provision and so on. Right. And you know, to be fair, I think some of them are mentioned as having caught some of that that energy, but uh <laughs> Pip is just I mean, Pip's just not happy. Yeah. Yeah, like I think there's a certain sense here in which even though most of the sailors are not going to be personally involved in the the harpooning business, um, mm-hmm. I mean, okay, actually, first of all, that might not quite be true, because I don't know how m- much of the crew actually gets involved in manning the boats. It might actually be a pretty significant fraction. Um, It'll go into it. Cool. Uh, <laughs> but the other thing is, like, there is, I think, clearly a sense that even the sailors who aren't necessarily going to literally get their hands in on the whale killing, they are all kind of, like, warriors, you know? Um, they are all, like... They're all part of this army that's engaged yeah. in this war. Um, yeah. Actually, I want to go back quite a ways. Very, I'll, I'll find it. Don't worry. Um, sorry, I just saw the phrase booble alley in a previous chapter and immediately giggled like an idiot. Um, but uh, I'm looking for that, that section about isolatos because I think that it specifically set Pip apart in a particular way. Um, but, uh, we should, we should continue rather than me, like, just... Well, I mean, that's, uh, that's pretty much the end of our, that's the end of our reading. Um, this, Mm. this little, you know, bit of, of, of Pip praying. Um, yeah, uh, ah, shucks. If I had been a little more on the ball, we would have picked our, uh, selection for next time, but I haven't done that, so... Whatever, I'll, f- I'll figure that out by the time the episode goes. We'll out. at least be reading chapter 41, Moby Dick, and we need to figure out if we can, you know, fit more into that, because that is also going to be a humdinger of a chapter. Yeah, I. it's interesting. Um, we read a shorter selection today than normal, actually, um, but uh, we talked about it for over two hours. <laughs> yep. Oh, I found it. I found it. It's, um, so the phrase was, uh, an anarch... 
Anacarsis Clute's deputation from all the isles of the sea and all the ends of the earth, accompanying old Ahab and the Pequod to lay the world's grievances before that bar from which not very many of them ever come back. Black little Pip, he never did. Oh no, he went before. Poor Alabama boy, on the grim Pequod's foxhole, ye shall ere long see him beating his tambourine, prelusive of the eternal time, when sent for to the great quarter-deck on high, he was bid strike in with angels and beat his tambourine in glory, called a coward here, hailed a hero there. Yeah. So that's that's right now. This is this is literally the moment where on the foxhole he is beating his tambourine and called a coward. Yeah, no, that's true. That's what's happening now. Yep, yep. I do want to return a little bit to a few things, uh, one of which is um, the old Manx sailor uh, referencing specifically uh, Captain Ahab's birthmark and or other kind of mark, the, the, the white line running down him, mm. uh, which uh, our captain has his birthmark. Look yonder, boys, there's another in the sky, lurid-like, ye see, all else pitch black. And so very directly drawing that connection between lightning and Ahab's mark. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. That that entire little paragraph is great, by the way. Yeah. Like, for, for one thing, he calls the mass the three pines, and then talks about how pines are the hardest sort of tree to live when shifted to any other soil, and here there's none but the crew's cursed clay. This idea that, like, the ship, to some extent, is, like, the pines can't, live it's it's a very weird statement especially with the idea that the crew's like bodies are cursed soil yeah cursed clay yeah that, yeah there's just a lot of i mean I, I think this old manx sailor just loves to say creepy shit to be honest oh yeah no absolutely he is you know how in a horror movie there's the the, the one old guy who's like turn back <laughs> yeah that's totally this guy <laughs> Yeah, the old Manx sailor is just doing overtime saying, turn back, and then not doing that, and no one does that, because we don't turn back in this book. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and the other thing I wanted to mention was, you know, getting back to modernism, very briefly. Right, yes. Um, I because... would love to hear, because you, you were, basically you quoted um, some Eliot earlier, yeah. um, and I was very, I, I don't know what the hell you were getting at, so please tell me. Oh, so... In the Eliot in particular, a lot of a lot of Eliot's four quartets is thinking about time, and a lot of modernism ends up talking a lot about time. There's a lot of different ways people argue about what makes a modernist work, in part because we want to sort of break up the idea that modernism is a bunch of novels and poems and so on written in England in this very specific period, in part because there's a lot of academics who've been studying that, and there's sort of a sense of, well, okay, but what else can we apply this lens to? What else does modernism talk about? And part of that is expanding it to other parts of the world and, you know, not literally just imperial British productions. And part of it is thinking about what it means to have modernism in other times and places. And uh, this idea of things being sort of set or angled or controlled by iron is very much part of sort of modernism's tension with the modern world, with this sense of being sort of locked in or deprived of some sort of vital force that is then being, you know, that modernism tries to draw out. Eliot's Wasteland and Four Quartets are different ways of thinking about how to sort of live in the modern world and deal with this sense of everything being run down or out of, you know, out of true energy or life or vitality, and also this sense of rupture and disruption in, you know, the world wars, the, uh, you know, collapse of traditional systems in various ways. 
and I think that's really interesting to pull back in time to Moby Dick, which does have the formal experimentation that marked a lot of these high modernist or like classical modernist works, and also has this sense of like, I mean, what in modernism is called primitivism, this idea that like, oh, we'll go back to the old folkways of England and use that to bring forward some kind of vital presence, often very involved with like sexuality and like druids. It's it's kind of goofy, honestly. Mm-hmm. But um, in this case, it's very much sort of, oh, we'll draw energy from the, you know, the pagan side of the world and link it to the sort of rarefied but... Um, uh, limp and less potent. Wow, that came out really sexual. Uh, less sort of energetic, but intellectual and rarefied mind of you know of Christianity of some of the Starbucks, and that's sort of what was proposed early on. That American, white American intellect, driven by non-white, non-Christian energies, would produce like the dynamo of the nation and of the future of a new commercial empire. But that's not what's going on in the Pequod now. The, these powers have overwhelmed the structure they're supposed to be in and are being reworked by Ahab, who doesn't really belong to any category but Ahab. Yeah, I think that all that makes sense. I definitely think that like Ahab, as we've seen him in the passage, that, in the stuff that we read today, is like he can't be fit into the Christian pagan binary that we've seen in this story because like he's, he's not Gnostic. He's not a fucking Christian, you know? Like No, no. Because like even if you're like, oh well does he believe like I would be willing to believe that Ahab believes in like, you know, like Monotheism? Yeah, monotheism and like the resurrection and the crucifixion mm-hmm. and all that stuff. He's just mad at all those things. <laughs> and it's not a Christian yeah, no, perspective. Um, yeah, no, it's it's very, like I've said before, and we'll say again, it's very Gnostic. Gnosticism was a monotheist or monotheism adjacent idea sort of arising in the region of, you know, historical Christianity. It's like a somewhere between 100 BCE and 100 CE is where you could pinpoint a lot of the Gnostic ideas. And my understanding is that a lot of that comes from the, uh, I mean, the interaction of Abrahamic and Jewish tradition and uh, Platonism and uh, the sort of Platonic and later Neoplatonic ideas about the world, which is also a lot of the intellectual ferment that led to the formation of Christianity as a theological proposition. Yes. So there's, on some level, while Gnosticism, you know, a lot of Gnosticism was Christian heresies, there's also a sense in which the two of them, the the basic concepts involved are this sort of fusion of other traditions at the time and Christianity. And I don't know how much of that Melville would have been aware of. We, you know, there was scholarship on Gnosticism at the time. I was told once in a conversation that, like, he would have been on a boat for a while with a professor of religious studies who was interested in that period and those ideas. So it's entirely possible Melville is intentionally drawing on them, and I'll, I'll point out things that I think point to that as we go on. But I do think that that, and specifically the idea in Gnosticism, is that God is evil, or at least a God is evil. The material world is created by something that doesn't care for us and is either ignorant or malevolent, and while it can be beautiful and impressive, there's a better or higher thing outside of it that spiritually is accessible through knowledge, which is gnosis. And I think that Ahab is very much sort of the champion of Gnostic ideas in this work. 
he sees a you know platonic kind of mask over you know some potential greater truth and he'd like to seize that truth and seize the world as an impediment to it rather than like an expression of it purely yeah i i think that all makes sense i mean i i do think it's worth noting um ahab has no conception of like sophia you know there is no good god in ahab's like universe yeah there isn't Yes, there is not a salvatory knowledge or a, a figure who's going to come and sort of release us in some way or, you know, a, a higher godhead up behind uh, behind the, the demiurge or whatever other term you want to use for the kind of theology he's applying to Moby Dick. Mostly. There's a few moments later in the work that I think are interesting to point out. But no, I, I agree that for the most part, Ahab is not expressing like the elaborate theological structures of Gnosticism. But I do think that he's drawing on that as like, yeah. I, I mean, I, I do think Melville is specifically drawing on that as at least a theological turbulence, a theological challenge to the Starbucks of the world. And the book in some sense is working out one way or another what he thinks sort of the conclusion is. Yeah, I think that's all true. Uh, okay, I'd, I'd like to wrap it up because we're at over two and yeah, a half that, hours at this fair. point. <laughs> okay. I guess that there's a very brief thing about like why I brought up modernism also is this idea that modernism is the literature of the break, of like a when social f frameworks and ideas are sort of collapsing or falling in on themselves, modernism's change in form and its experimentalism express that sense that things are falling apart. And so it's very interesting to me to think about Moby Dick as a modernist text, because then the question becomes, what break? Like, because it's, you know, it's not really an industrial revolution novel. It's not really a, you know, political revolution yeah, novel in a lot I, of I ways. I was actually even thinking, because, like, I, I see why you thought about the, um, the, the Elliot passage that you did when, like, we had, mm -hmm. when we were at that bit of, like, talking about like iron and what it symbolizes for Ahab but like the things that like a train symbolizes for Elliot are I think totally different from what they symbolize to Ahab because mm -hmm. like the industrial revolution as it's pictured in this book is like mankind significantly yeah it's like too. it is mankind's towering achievement of progress it is not like a thing that has like destroyed life you know yeah, no, it's it is absolutely the case that the, the the frameworks and context are very different. It's just it's interesting to me to think about what, what break or collapse of an old symbolic order is present in Moby Dick that spurs on this experimentation. If we're going to take the modernist position that like you know modernist studies position that or a modernist studies position. Oh God, I'm I'm gonna get hate mail from people in my cohort who listen to this, uh, that, you know, that experimentation is attempting to reflect that kind of break. What break might it be reflecting is an interesting thing that I don't have an answer to. I, I mean, I think it might be something to think about, or it might just be something to go, huh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that in order to, like, really answer that question in the way that you'd framed it, I think we'd probably have to know a lot more than you and I really do about, like, the immediate historical context in which Melville was writing, right? Because like when you talk yeah. when you talk about modernism as a response to a quote unquote break, you're talking about historical events. Like you're talking about World yeah. War One. Um and yes. obviously 
there there was a war, but I believe that uh, Moby Dick was completed before that. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, you know, if we want to talk about Moby Dick as responding to historical events, we'd probably have to put a little more effort into knowing about those historical yeah, events. Yeah. Um, but I'm not going to. <laughs> I mean, I'm not opposed to it, but I'm also putting a lot of effort into just knowing about Moby Dick, the book. So there's a limit to how much yeah, external very... research I can do. Um, yeah, very fair. I I think that I don't think that we're going to find, like, a historical break that produces Moby Dick, or at the very least, I think that that would be something you get, like, that gets presented alongside Moby Dick when you get sort of the general high school understanding of it. Yeah, there's not going to be, like, an obvious thing we can point to, I'm sure. Um, But I definitely think, like, I'm also interested in the idea that, like, certainly in high modernism, that sense of rupture is not only societal, but also extremely personal, right? Like, it's very often about a sense of, like, personal inability to cope with society. And, and, like, Melville certainly had, in various ways, a personal inability to cope with society. Yeah, that that makes sense, yeah. And it's certainly, um, it's certainly the case that we've had sort of, you know, even in the introduction to the book, this sense of, like, okay, yeah, society does not have a good place for you people that I like here, but, you know, heaven will reward us. Uh, we will, you know, uh, un- unsplinterable glasses and all that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess fundamentally, if you're looking at it on the level of, like, the events of the story, like, what rupture is Moby Dick in response to? It's Ishmael's suicidality. Yeah. Oh, um, wow. Or I was actually about to say Ahab losing his leg. Oh, that's also a very good point, There's, actually. <laughs> there are certainly a number of very personal ruptures in question. And very, very last modernist thing that just has popped into my head. Another thing is that current modernism studies, uh, at least like Susan Friedman and a few others who uh, are interested in expanding modernism and a number of other people as well, is thinking about modernism in the context of oceans, islands, and sort of... Uh, the, the literal physical splintering of space that is involved in sort of an archipelagic way of looking at things, which is a whole interesting theoretical space, but I just want to point out the idea of isolatos, that this is a collection of people from all the islands of the world, is a very interesting way of uh, connecting that sort of uh, current modernism stuff to Moby Dick. And again, this is like, if you're interested in this, there's a bunch of stuff that you could check out, and uh, I'd be happy to I don't know, but I don't have a lot on it right now. I'm sure, yeah, no, if anybody is interested in more reading on, like, you know, modernism studies and the stuff we're talking about, I'm sure Ben would be delighted to, like, send links to papers or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but uh, I think we should sign off for now. Yep, um, and I... we finally, finally, at, like, 11 <laughs> episodes in, we have a sign-off. Um, uh, so uh, what do we say to the people, Ben? A dead whale or a stove boat? That's right.